Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hedrick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Hello, and welcome back to the Who's Who podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, and along me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, Mr. Rob Kelly. And joining us for this very special episode, and I do mean in the 1980s kind of way, our good buddy, Siskoid of Canada. How you doing, guys? <laughs> We're good. Siskoid of Canada. I like, that was an interesting <laughs> intro. Uh, I, I, Shag, you and I have not done a Who's Who together in over a year. It's been nice. Uh, I should, yeah, I wonder if we remember how to do this. I had to review my notes. <laughs> As, as those of you listening at home don't realize I screwed up the intro already once and this is the second attempt. <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, so all right, here's the deal, folks. It's been ages since we all sat down and had a nice conversation like this. In fact, the last time we did a standard kind of who's who thing where Rob and I are together was the who's who annuals from 1989 part two. All right, so that was uh, 14 months ago. <laughs> That's crazy. That's crazy. But I, there's been a, you know, and we're going to get to some comments in here where people are like, man, we just, you know, we want to get to real who's who. Well, here's the deal. It has been 14 months, but we haven't been sitting on our hands. I mean, we did produce seven episodes over those 14 months. And check this out. That was 21 hours of podcasting on who's who across those seven episodes. That's insane. Oh, my gosh. We had the uh, the we, we we had the two episodes on Who's Who in Star Trek. We had the four episodes on the Legion, and we had uh, Rob put together that one special. You know, um, what do you call that? Every the greatest every season, hits, the greatest, greatest hits, JLA hits. package. Yeah, I was thinking the flashback episode, but yes, of the JLA, exactly right. So, um, whew. so what we wanted to do is before we jump into the Loose Leaf, which is next, the next episode of the Who's Who show will be about the very first issue of Loose Leaf. We're so excited, y'all are excited. We're getting tons of feedback on it already. Uh, we wanted to sort of clear the decks. You know, you guys are so – we've talked about this many times. You guys are so amazing. A huge part of the Who's Who podcast is the feedback we get from the listeners, telling Rob why he's wrong, telling me why I'm right, telling us the things that we may not have been aware of. It's just a really great collection of feedback. In fact, the feedback for most Who's Who episodes – should be collected in like a book or something and be a companion piece to the show. It's that good. So we looked at all the feedback from those shows I mentioned earlier, and I put it together in a Google document. It came out to be, I kid you not, with no exaggeration and not double-spaced, 84 pages of feedback from those episodes. Insane. So we obviously are not going to take all the time to read that because, quite frankly, Siskoid, I think Canada would have seceded from North America by the time we get done anyway. So we're just going to do bits and pieces and sort of hit on some of the high points. So and the reason we invited Siskoid was because Siskoid was part of both of these sets. He was on the Star Trek episodes and the Legion episodes. And quite frankly, it gives Rob and I a chance to just sit back and let Siskoid answer all the hard questions. I'm going to sit, well, I'm going to sit back through all the Legion segments. I, I will try not to snore. <laughs> but, but yeah, during Star Trek, I'm just going to be like, Bear Claw? Wait, wait, there you go. Siskoid, take it. And then we'll just come back from that. Yep. I spent the day doing research, so should be should be fine. 
the, the way we do these documents is a shared Google document so we can see the notes each other makes. And last night, Cisco and I, it was like a race to get through the Legion entries. You could see each one of us <laughs> highlighting, like in sync with each other. And I was trying to be stay just a little bit ahead of him so I could highlight all the questions for him to answer, not for me. I wanted to and make sure he I, got all of them. <laughs> and I was trying to stay just a step back, <laughs> just the back of you so that I'd see, okay, he wants me to do this one. All right. Shag's screwing me again. Awesome. It's like the nerdiest spy movie you've ever seen. <laughs> I call Black Spy. Oh. Well, before we get too much further, we should take a second to thank our sponsor. Folks, this episode of the Who's Who podcast, I feel good to be back in the, in the swing of things here, you know? Uh, this episode of the Who's Who podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for uh, $50 or more. Now, each one of us have brought a selection. We got one Legion selection, we got one Star Trek selection, and then we have a surprise selection, which is going to be connected to, uh, I guess you call the codicil of this episode at the end. Would that be fair to say, guys? If that's the right word for it, I don't know. Yeah, if... I don't know. So <laughs> yeah. I figured Cisco knows the definition of English words better than us, quite frankly. So, uh, Rob, why don't you tell us your in-stock trade pick? My selection is Star Trek, the newspaper strips, hardcover volume one. This presents the rare newspaper strip from the late 1970s, early 1980s that Star Trek fans have eagerly awaited. Volume one includes the first ten story arcs from the strip's debut on December 2nd, 1979 through October 5th, 1981. Stories and art by Thomas Workington, Sharman Devono, and Ron Harris. It's collected by IDW, so we know it looks handsome because IDW does great collections of these strips. 264 pages, color and black and white. Normal price, $49.99 in stock. Trades price, $34.99. That's 30% off. I have never seen these strips at all. I, I know of their existence, but I've never seen them. I'm fascinated that there was a Star Trek newspaper strip, so I would love to read uh, this book. So if anybody wants to get me this, that would be great because it looks really cool. Cisco, you're, you're pretty diehard Star Trek covering all the stuff on your blog. Have you ever touched on the, the newspaper strips? Never. I've never seen them either. So not <sighs> that I see they're available. Hmm. I didn't know this existed. I, you know, when when I when Rob mentioned, it, I was like, "Whoa, that's because I love newspapers, like the old Star Wars newspaper strips." Oh yeah, I yeah. have I have bought those so many times as Dark Horse individual issues. I bought the collected editions from Dark Horse. I just love those newspaper strips. It's a great format. So I bet the Star Trek yeah. ones are awesome. My only two blanks are the, those strips and the UK stuff. There's mm. some Star Trek UK comics that I've never seen. Okay, there you go. Interesting. All right. Well, I brought one to pair with our Legion coverage. I brought uh, a book that I didn't even know had been reprinted yet. It's called Legion by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning. It's not even – they didn't even like, give it a name. It's just a creator. So that's amazing. Uh, it's Trade Paperback Volume 1. Obviously, Dan Abnett, Andy Lanning. We're writing it. Um, and, Rob, you're going to have to help me with this, the guys. Olivier Coppel? I can't Co say I think Coppel, I thought. There we go. I always let Rob do that because I always mess it up. Anyway, this basically collects the blight. If you had ever read Legion back in the 90s or early 2000s, I guess, is when this was going on. Either way, it was so good. So this collects Legionnaires 78 through 81, Legion Super is 122 to 125, and then Secret Files number two. I know it's a bunch of gobbledygook. But basically it was the end of the run of, I guess you'd call it the post-zero hour run, where the, the, the blight comes in. It becomes very dystopian. So it's almost like... I don't know, a nice mix of post-zero-hour Legion with the, the five-year-later five because it's, it's dystopian. And then it eventually leads into the Legion Law story. It's really exceptional. It's 224 pages. Normally retails for $24.99. You can get it for 45% off right now. It's $13.74. It re-energized my love of the Legion at that time. So I highly recommend it. So, Ciscoid. I was just going to say, uh, we have a surprise thing at the end, and Ciscoid's pick is going to sort of lead us there. What you got, buddy? Right. This, is, this connects to the appendix. 
appendix. Let's call it an appendix because a codicil, I think, has to modify or, uh, uh, you know, modify what came before. Ah, okay, fair so enough. An appendix is just like a tag, you know tacked on uh and this is yeah this this may give it away for people who know our larger circle uh but it's the uh showcase presents martian manhunter volume one trade paperback hmm you get it yet uh i'm just playing along with you know for people at home um yeah so this is this uh, is a monster brick 544 pages uh, of the very earliest Martian Manhunter strips by Jack Miller and artist Joe Serta, among others. Uh, it is, I, I mean, I, I counted, I have this book, I counted, that's 81 stories, you know, <laughs> from the Martian Manhunter's earliest uh, uh, material. And uh, normally a very reasonable 16, uh, 1699 price at in-stock trades, 850 That's 50% off. So uh, you can get in on the ground floor and... Uh, uh, you'll see how this ties into the show later if you haven't figured it out. And if you pick yourself up a green magic marker, you can make that book in color, probably at least 50% of it in color real quick, I bet. <laughs> so, wow, that's, uh, that's a heck of a lot of stories. Woof. And a lot of those characters might be, uh, might be worth talking about. So, folks, for these and all your other collect edition needs, please visit InStockTrades.com, go up to the Contact Us button, and let them know the Fire & Water podcast sent you. All right. Well, we got a lot to talk about. We got 84 pages to cover. So why don't we get into it? We're going to start off with just some general comments we've received lately uh, about the show, the Who's Who podcast in general. Rob, when he kicks off. Uh, yes, we're going to start with uh, some general comments. What are the more popular generals in military history? We got something from Stephen Bird, <laughs> and he sent us some pictures of some custom-bound Who's Who volumes. And he says they were a Christmas gift from my girlfriend, Sarah Barbie, that just arrived. This is legitimately the coolest thing I own. Thank you, baby. I love it, and I love you. Shag and Rob, I thought you guys might appreciate this. It was listening to Who's Who that reignited my love for the series and led to her giving me this terrific gift. And, yeah, these photos of these things, are so, they are beautifully put together. Yeah. They, took, they have, like, a, a monochromatic cover, and then, like, on top of the monochromatic sort of background, you've got one single character pulled from those particular issues on the cover. They are simply gorgeous. Like, if these were available, I would buy them. I own all the Who's Who's already, but these would look so great on a bookshelf. They are, they're just, they really are. Stephen Bird is right. They, they're generally the coolest thing he owns, and they would be the coolest thing anybody's going to own. They are just absolutely fantastic. So if you're saying those backgrounds are monochromatic, would you say they're almost a serpent? Well, no, no, they're not. They're not a serpent. Oh, That's okay. different. Yes. I was trying. I was I trying. Know. Okay. I know. Well, not anyway. yet, but you're working towards it. I appreciate it. Uh, then we heard from our buddy Jeff Tischer, who says, or I should say our new buddy. He says, greetings. I was introduced to the Who's Who podcast from the Legion of Superheroes Facebook group I'm in. I had to go back to the beginning and start there. I'm so glad I did. I finished up to the J issue as I typed this, and I only started listening last week. Man, these are fun to listen to and are flying by. By the way, we're just sort of cherry picking, like, because the comments are very long, so I'm just cherry picking, like, what Jeff says, and we'll be doing that throughout. He says, uh, Like Shag, my first who's who was the Green Lantern issue. I was six, and my dad brought it home from the Sables grocery store one night. He handed me a few other comics, but intended to keep the who's who for himself, citing that the $1 price tag and my lack of care for comics already in my possession. I literally read them until I fell apart. However, looking over his shoulder and seeing the double page spread of the Green Lantern Corps was all it took, and by the end of the night, the comic was mine. I eventually tracked down all the back issues and collected who's who in its many forms ever since. I actually saved up the money for page protectors from the for the loose leaf version because I knew that I would destroy the three-hole punches and how, uh, how much I would pour over them. That was a weird birthday when I was ecstatic to get a box of 100 page protectors. 
And then he says, at P.S., as a superlative for Jerry Ordway, my friend Mark and I have always said, there is a wrong way and there is an Ordway. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. I dig that. that. Yeah, I like that a lot. I, I love the idea of uh, of his Jeff's dad being like, these forever people listings are just too valuable to put in the hands of my grubby son. <laughs> All right, then we heard from our buddy Michael O'Brien, who uh, was also kind enough to give us some shout-outs of the Who's Who podcast over in a Facebook group for uh, Back Issue magazine, which then resulted in a whole bunch of conversation. And, Michael, you even got involved in the conversation, giving some background knowledge on Who's Who, which we'll drop in an uh, upcoming episode when we talk about Loose Leafs. And also another thank you to the folks over at the DC Comics Vault, also very kind, give us some really kind shout-outs over on their Facebook page. Uh, and we also got a message from Robert Markham, and he says, I hope Zoom doesn't mind me stepping on his toes with this attachment. The art is by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, praise be his name. from the 1982 style guide. And it looks pretty close to a Who's Who listing. And it's got it's Supergirl in her headband outfit, drawn by JLGL. It has first appearance, powers, and skills. I mean, it is, it's like a slick, computerized version of a Who's Who listing. And no, it's, no, it's not. What? You totally missed it. I knew you did. What? Siskoi, tell him what it is. Well, that's in the format of, Le- of the Who's Who in the Legion. Because yep. she's missing from that book, isn't she? Oh, I yep. see. Okay. And see, everything's bo- the, the, the boxes and everything and the yellow stripe. That's all the Who's Who in the Legion format, which I know you didn't care about or even pay any attention to, even though we did five episodes. Thank you very much. Or four episodes. Thanks for paying attention. Uh, but please continue. Well, now you've taken the wind out of my sails, no shag. Thank you very much. <laughs> anyway, it's – I've been doing it for six years. It's a very nice listing. I mean, she looks great. I actually – that's one of my favorite costumes of hers. And, of course, it's drawn by JLGL, so it's perfect. And it's, it's something that should have been included. It's too bad. I like the yeah. uh, base of operations. Midvale, Stanhope, San Francisco, San Augusta, New York City, then Chicago. <laughs> it's like when we did that digest. She just kept moving and moving yeah. and moving and moving. So, yeah, it's, it's a gorgeous entry. And, see, that's the part that blew me away was how faithful he was to the Legion, uh, Who's Who Legion format. It looks great. It was part, you could print this out and slip it right into your Who's Who in the Legion. You'd have your Supergirl entry because we did bemoan the loss of the Supergirl entry when that one covered that. Very nice stuff. Uh, we got a message from Quizmaster Noah Tarno. He says, hello, Shag and Rob. Having just finished to listening to about 35 episodes of the Who's Who podcast in a couple of months, he must be in jail. I wanted to compliment you on what you should proudly consider one of the greatest accomplishments in the history of mankind. As we would all agree, 2016 was a miserable year. And since I was pathologically obsessed with Who's Who during the 1980s, you provided a serious dose of nostalgic escapism when I needed it most. In all seriousness, I'm generally not much of a podcast fan, even when the topic is something I'm interested in. I find most podcast hosts aren't nearly as entertaining as they think they are. That seems like a shot at us. But you two have a very easy and engaging interplay that kept me listening for, dear God, something like 100 hours of my preciously limited lifespan. As... As a former copy editor, I appreciate your frequent praise for the work of proofreader Ben DePope. Uh, I would have probably given a major limb to have had her job. In fact, revisiting Who's Who has reminded me how much of what a major element my endless reading of those comics was on my linguistic education. So I started compiling a list of words that I learned, first learned, from the pages of Who's Who. To this day, pretty much any time I read, hear any of these words, I'm reminded of the specific entry where I first encountered it, including mm. charisma, brother blood. Proxy, Starfinger, Dwarf as a verb, Dr. Fate, Albeit, the Secret Society of Supervillains, Major Domo, Computer, Punch Drunk, the Demolition Team, <laughs> Adequate, Kronos, Charlatan, <laughs> Gentleman, yeah, Charlatan, Gentleman, Ghost, Homely, Silver Swan, Grotesque, Clayface 3, Enigmatic, Arkham Asylum, Gal Friday, Sarge Steel. 
Probably a bunch more I can't remember right now, but you get the idea. Looking forward to the loose leaf editions when I can revisit my DC nerd high school years as opposed to my DC nerd middle school years. That's a great letter. I love that. I, that is fantastic. Thank you so much, Quizmaster. That's just super. That is really cool. And you have such a specific memory, too, to which entry. I mean, just a, what cool memory. And, you know, how forward-thinking were his parents in naming him Quizmaster. That's pretty impressive. That's great. Yeah, he's a Batman fan. So uh, then we heard from Chris Lewis, who says, I know it'll be months before you get back to who's who in the DCU proper, but I wanted to let you know how your who's who coverage of the DC sci-fi characters has inspired a game I'm hosting on the role-playing creative writing website called Storium. Like Rob, I too have harbored an irrational love for Ultra the Multi-Alien <laughs> and hearing about all the other cool yet underused and underdeveloped science fiction characters from DC's history made me want to set up a game featuring characters like Space Cabby, Star Hawkins, Captain Comet, etc. entitled Mystery in Space, just like the comic. That is freaking cool. Chris, I hope you're still playing the game because you wrote this, this letter quite a while ago and I hope it's still going strong because that sounds like an absolute hoot, man. It does sound really cool. I, I yeah, that, that's I, again. We talked about this. Uh, Chris and I talked about this on a recent the, the mailbag episode of uh, Super Movie Minute. We have like some really imaginative fans, and I like the imagination it took to come up with that. That's really cool. Uh, so we are now moving on to the 1989 annuals for Volume Two. We got a comment from David A. Gutierrez. He says, "Shag, didn't you and the question share the same hairstyle?" Also, we never see here about young Rob Kelly's flaxen days. Mullet, Mohawk, Wally Cleaver. My money is on Flatliners era Kiefer Sutherland. Uh, (laughs) None of those are true. I don't know if there are any pictures of me from the Kubert school year. So uh, maybe a friend, maybe somebody that I went to school with has one, but I'll try and dig that up. But no, my hair was just, it was just longer and a little thicker, but it was, it never went down past my neck. I was never a long haired person ever in my entire life. There's that one picture of you in Tex. Blaisdell. That's the longest my hair has ever been. Yes. Okay. And that ain't long at all. So, yeah, I've, ne- I've never <laughs> gone into that. So, anyway, uh, <laughs> thank you so much, David, for bringing that up. Uh, Al Van Z. Girding says, happy to hear a Miss America reference while listening to the episode during my evening walk. And then Chad responded, I think Rob is totally baiting you. It was a gift from him. Uh, no, I actually really like Miss America, and I thought that Miss America would have been a great substitute for Wonder Woman in like the post-crisis universe instead of Black Canary. So, and I thought her Who's Who listing by Grant Meehan was like, terrific. So, uh, I actually do really like that character. It was not a, just a sop to Al. Well, at one point, if I remember correctly, she was actually a substitute for Wonder Woman in the JSA in the post-crisis universe for a while, and then they overrode it with all the retcons and retcons oh, and retcons and retcons. But it, one of the retcons had her being like the secretary of the JSA. If I I recall okay. correctly. That makes a lot of sense. Yep. Heard again from David Ace Gutierrez. There's a whole lot of snarkiness from David. Uh, he goes, hey, geniuses, you can become <laughs> – this has to do with uh, the, the question entry we were reading where a mayor died and his wife took over. So he goes, hey, geniuses, you can become mayor if you're married to the mayor and the mayor dies. Didn't you watch She's the Sheriff? No. <laughs> Well, it's an amazing reference, man. I thought of that show since probably the day it aired. So I, I well well played, sir. Uh, then Paul Hicks chimed in uh, about Swamp Thing. He goes, hey, Rick Veach's uh, run finale in issue number 88 uh, with Swamp Thing, Meeting Jesus, was never published, despite being long planned and editorially approved. It led to not only his angry departure, but also led Neil Gaiman to bail on the book as he was the next writer lined up. He wrote a fair chunk of Swamp Thing annual number five. Tragedy all around with this decision. Issue number 88 took months to come out and led to about four years of mediocrity for the book, only broken when Mark Millar came in. 
Wow. Well, first, interesting information. Thank you for sharing that. We appreciate it. That's we're all about the personal stories and the interesting information. I will disagree with you, though, because in that interim was the Nancy Collins era of Swamp Thing, and that's actually when I found Swamp Thing. So I'm kind of biased towards it. Uh, Jeff R. followed up by saying the plan had been for Gaiman, Morrison, and Bassett to write the book with a rotating schedule. I think everyone involved in annual number five, uh, which was setting up things they were planning to do with the book. Man, could you imagine that? If they had a rotating write- series of writers like that, that would have been amazing. Ugh. A neat idea. Uh, we get a message from Ann, our old pal Ange, and he says uh, he has comments on a bunch of listings. In one, he says, "Shiva and Rob, I don't think Denny O'Neill is the only guy to have tossed off with Lady Shiva. I worry that Shiva has devolved to what I call a yardstick character. She is now the measuring stick people use to show how tough another character is. How tough is the new Huntress? She beat Lady Shiva. How tough is Danny Chase? He beat Lady Shiva. It is a shame." <laughs> Um, uh, I'm glad, yeah, the whole thing, okay, never mind. Our pal Chris Franklin uh, also wrote in, and he had actually another comment about Lady Shiva as well, and he says, Lady Shiva got an entry in the 87 update, and it was a full page. Odd that she got downgraded here. Seems odd that her involvement in the death in the family is left out completely. Batman suspected she was Robin's mom. Uh, and he also, Fair point. Yeah, and he also mentions Rick Stasi. He says, Rick Stasi does capture that Golden Age vibe with the original Black Canary. The idea of there being two Black Canaries does indeed originate with Roy Thomas's crazy JLA retcon. I wonder if he hadn't introduced this notion. Would the post-crisis universe give us two Canaries? I'm not sure. I, I agree. I think Rick Stasi's stuff uh, in these uh, Who's Who listings are actually really, really good. Regarding the Detective Comics annual, he says, Laughing Fish, Rob, not Devil Fish. That's a boat in an old G.I. Joe R.A.H. line and a Legion of Superheroes character. I can't believe I made that mistake. <laughs> uh, he addresses something I say because I was talking about Catwoman and how they jettisoned some of her continuity. He says, yes, DC did in, uh, indeed jettison all of Catwoman's precursors continuity, including her costumes. At this time, when Catwoman showed up a few times in the Bat books proper during the period, it was weird. It seemed that no one knew what to do with her. It wasn't until Nightfall and the launch of the Jim Blatton series uh, that seemed to get a handle on her in the Batverse. Now... Uh, I would say that some people would say the Jim Blanton version of Catwoman was a mistake. So there you go. He also mentions Rob's con- Rob, congrats for getting in Aqua Rob's shape. Now I hate you because I'm nowhere near that shape. All those nerds are supposed to be doughy, damn it. It's in the bylaws. Uh, you'll be happy to know, Chris, <laughs> that over the course of this winter, I am <laughs> undoing all that progress. So I'm happy about that. Thank goodness. Yeah. One of us. One <laughs> of us. Uh, I'm back to the Pillsbury Doughboy shape that I am born to be. Jeff R. commented. He <laughs> says, uh, oh, yeah, as expected, omissions-wise, I've got nothing. I mean, gun to my head. I'd say Mad Hatter is in the same tier as a Batman villain, a Scarecrow, and the Clay Faces, I guess. Also, I never picked up a loose leaf who's who, so I can't say how I sorted it. Ask me about the loose leaf DD monstrous compendium, though. Is that what that, guys, what is that? Is that what that sounds like? Like a, yeah, that's a the loose leaf monster manual. Yeah, yeah monster manual. Okay. Yep. All right. Fair enough. Yep. And it, now, it's upsetting that Jeff R. doesn't do the loose leaf because Jeff's the one who always gives us our egregious omission of the month. So maybe he'll just have to brainstorm when he, when we go through these because they, you know, they're not going to be alphabetical anymore either. So that's right. That's right. I hope you keep listening, Jeff. What were we going to say, Cisco? Nothing. Right. Exactly. Keep it that way, you in Canada. Pipe down, buddy. All right. Uh, our, my buddy Joe X, who later on I'm going to say is not my buddy anymore. Anyway, uh, Joe says it seems that the JLI entries from the annuals were something done as part of the original international pitch and feel like throw-ins. You know, he's a bit right. The entries for the international characters, while I thought they were fun to read and they were real kind of a hoot, it really is more like something from a story bible. Because they, they give you a lot of nitpick stuff about the characters, and it's almost like 
doesn't really belong in Who's Who. It almost feels like, yeah, like they broke out, broke out a story Bible and just published it. Mike says, uh, it sounds like you are planning to cover the Star Trek and Legion volumes. Uh, yeah. Will you be covering the original <laughs> DC Who's Who that appeared at various DC comics from 1944 to 1946? I have no idea what he's talking about. Do any of you Me guys? Either. I have no idea what no that one. is. Cisco, you've read a lot of Golden Age. Yeah, but I, I haven't heard of this. Um, it may, it, I don't know. Maybe it's, uh, hmm. <laughs> is it? No, really. Is it, it, it? Was it like pages that appeared in select comics? That's what I'm assuming, uh, based on his yeah. description. I have no idea. Uh, Mike, Mike, you wrote this comment uh, over a year ago, but please let us know <laughs> uh, what that is. I really have no idea what he's talking about. It sounds intriguing. Uh, right. But yeah, so I'm going to check that out. Uh, Anthony Durso says, all good things must come to an end. Now that you've, now that you're done with the original format, who's who, what about a wrap up show sometimes before you guys hit the loose leaf? Here you go. Like a bunch of your top fives, top five favorite things, top five hated, top five that didn't get a listing, but should have sugar and spike top five that uh, would have been better if drawn by dot, 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 just food for thought. I like that idea, Anthony, and that might be something we do at the very end of everything. We're not going to stop because people have been asking for the loose leaves for so long, and we've been kind of dragging our feet, not intentionally, but we don't want to, like, delay it again. So I think that's something Shag and I might get to later on. Yeah, it, it's a great idea. Yeah, people, like many people have asked for it over the years. Yeah. It's also a tremendous amount of research on our part. That's true. Uh, which, which is a whole other problem. It's, it's tough enough to read one of these suckers, let alone try and think outside of, out of the actual binded comics. So. Yeah, yeah. But yes, it's something we'd like to do eventually. Uh, my buddy Jimmy McGlinchey wrote in to say the only annual that I've read from this was the JLI annual. Jimmy's a big fan, is very involved with the JLI podcast, so glad to hear from him here. So he says, anyway, he read the JLI annual. He says, the who's who entries were humorous enough, but given the animosity that uh, Blue Beetle was showing towards Captain Adam in the main story in the annual, arising from the events in Captain Adam's own series, it was probably an opportunity to give an updated who's who entry on Captain Adam. I remember seeing Blue Beetle's disdain for Cap and wondering about it, as it was rare for Blue Beetle to show so much anger. A who's who entry would have helped readers who were not reading Adam's own series, like myself, to know the reason behind Beetle's fury you know jimmy that's a great point because all these years i, I knew that captain adam betrayed the jli but it is never talked about in the pages of jli and so oh, i just kind of have a head scratcher it wasn't until just a few months ago with some help from jli listeners that i tracked down the captain adam issues where it happens and read those and you know i feel like a more complete jli fan now but yeah putting that into the who pages would have been a nice compromise uh bradley null just writes in to say i love this stuff can't wait until i have issues to follow with again thank you bradley and then Siskoid himself wrote in to say, bravo on finishing the newsprint era. Wait, did you do Argyle? It's been so long, I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> didn't, we, uh, didn't we do him on the Victory Lap episode? We never did. Yeah. That is a bone of contention which continually pisses off Siskoid. He keeps asking about it, and I keep thinking we did it in the Victory Lap episode after issue 26, but apparently we didn't. We will get to Argyle, we promise. Yes, we will. Our <laughs> then I uh, heard from Travis H. He says, it hap I happened upon this podcast through the Legion of Super Bloggers. Great show. And thanks for your dedication. I, too, am looking forward to the Loose Leaf Edition, not, uh, not the least because it covers two of my favorite runs in comic books, Grant Morrison and Richard Case's Doom Patrol and the five years later Legion of Superheroes. Travis you and me both, buddy. The Grant Morrison uh, Doom Patrol and the Legion 5 YL is both some of my favorite comics. They came at just the right time in my life. In fact, I saw the Grant Morrison issues in the library the other day as trade paperbacks, and I'm like, they're in my hands. I'm like, I, I think I need to check these out. I'm like, I own the issues at home. Why am I doing this? <laughs> but they're so good. So good. 
Uh, we got a comment from Stella, who is a tiny little pocket person, and she says, Sigh, Lady <laughs> Viper. Why did it have to be Lady Viper? First of all, hats off to Zoom, who did a lovely slash horrifying job on his latest Zoom Who? Secondly, Shag said something like, quote, probably Stella's favorite story, unquote. No, 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 no. The story <laughs> taking place in Detective 514 to 517 was close to the worst story I have ever read. Let me put it this way. Barbara Gordon, Batgirl, turns into a snake woman and is assisted by some homeless people living in the subway. What? Lady Viper actually recently reappeared in Rebirth's Batgirl and the Birds of Prey number three. Why? All caps. Finally, I always love Shag's short songs. Swamp Thing, you made my heart sing, even if Rob does not. <laughs> well, first of all, she is a pocket person. Second of all, you're right. There should be more singing on the podcast in 2017. And third, I totally knew that Stella hated that story, and I was totally baiting her, and she fell for it. <laughs> so everybody wins all the way around. Mm-hmm. Then we heard from Wolfgang Hartz. He says the Joker, being an Iranian ambassador, talking about death in the family, uh, was eventually retconned to being an ambassador of the fictional country of Quirak in Batman Gotham Knight storyline in 2003. Man, look at that. So uh, that's that's pretty clever to do that because it always kind of was weird reading Death in the Family, that connection to the real world. So that makes more sense. Uh, coming from DC Dave, he says, one last thing. I'm a little bummed that comments won't be until the Loose Leaf edition starts up. I know I wouldn't mind a comments episode. Inception. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I mean, it's time to reveal it. We did all of this for you, Dave. That's so right. you're, right. you're welcome. Uh, Diablo Frank wrote in because, of course, he did. And I mean, all the comments he's got, he says, uh, there's a really, that's a really nice Joker by Kevin McGuire, but I prefer Bill Willingham's along with the other folks associated with the character in this period. Just a smidge too realistic for me. I like the butch anti-heroine Catwoman better than the Duffy Ballant version that came out of Nightfall, but it was probably doomed by being stripped down realistic in Gotham City. Regardless of Daniel Neal's assertions, that town is never truly believable, and I prefer it surrealistic. The Birch Penguin isn't too bad. Never heard of Joe James, and I don't mind him, but I'm not thrilled either. I'm an outlier... Mm-hmm. And never particularly liking Norm <laughs> Bravefogel on Detective Comics, but not disliking his basic style. I hate Mudpack, though. That means only Two Face is sweet. All right. Frank man, Frank was bashing on Bravefogel? Man, that's not cool. Uh, and Frank continues I was notified by the Yellow Dot nomination committee that after hearing the results of my Twitter data dump, which is that that was where Frank gave us all the, uh, the sales numbers for who's who over the years from uh, Capital City Comics, he goes, uh, A recall has been initiated on my Yellow Dot award. Can you guys email? a packing sticker so I can ship the thing back. I would argue that Who's Who decline in sales was due to the standard attrition on any series, which is why no comic series lasts longer than a couple years anymore. People are too ignorant and too lazy to vote responsibly. Oop, or, um, to, or finding a jumping on point that isn't a number one. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell when that comment was written. <laughs> Clark Edwards said, Howdy, friendos. I was listening to your awesome little show the other day and heard you two mention Joe Brozowski, J.J. Birch, and Joe James. The similarities in the names got me thinking that if Mr. Brozowski would use one pseudonym, why not two? So I did some digging on Joe James. It looks like Joe James may be J.J. Birch, Joe James <gasps> Birch, who is in fact Joe Brozowski. I pulled this from the internet, as we all know, the internet never lies. Joseph Brzezowski, who uses the pseudonym Joe James Birch, or simply J.J. Birch, began his career in the mid-1970s. I have, found, I have since found that Joe James now owns his own ad studio firm agency thingy. This may be a comic mystery for years to come. Keep in mind that I am no Magnum P.I. or Scarecrow and Mrs. King. I just thought this was something to ponder. I love that um, Scarecrow and Mrs. King was Clark's second go-to detective character. That just charms me. <laughs> 
Yeah, he may be because, because aren't they there. spies? Isn't that a show about spies? They're not detectives. Uh, I, I, I've, I've never spies. seen I've never seen that show, so I know I know who stars in it. But I never saw an episode. <laughs> it's absolutely about spies. Well, he's a spy, and she's like a I think like a housewife or something who gets t- caught up in it, sort of okay. thing. But yeah, right. we have too much knowledge about the eighties. It's just sad. We should talk about Voyagers instead. Can we do that, Siskoid? Can we just dump this whole who's who thing and talk about Voyagers if you want? Oh, I'm ready. <laughs> okay, there it is. That's you what know. I needed. Perfect. I own it. Heard my buddy Michael Bailey. He says, the mention of Aristotle Rodor reminded me, and this is from the uh, question entry. So Aristotle Rodor reminded me of an Easter egg from 1988 that I didn't get until a few years ago. You know what works better when you use a shared document? When someone else on the other end of the line doesn't keep highlighting what you're trying to read so it keeps changing colors. I'm just saying, it works a little better that way. <laughs> the mention of Aristotle Rodor reminded me of an Easter egg from 1988 that I didn't get until a few years ago. In the first Death in the Family trade paperback, the one that was 395 and it had a paper thin enough to see through it, there was a mock introduction, or maybe it was an afterward, by an academic in the future writing about the death of Robin. I read the thing over and over and over again, but it didn't click until I finally read the first half of the 1980s question series that Denny O'Neill was having a bit of fun with us by naming the academic so, um, Socrates, <laughs> I'm saying the Bill and Ted way, Socrates Rodor, assume, uh, amusing if only slightly so. So Aristotle Rodor, Socrates Rodor, very clever. And you know, I own that same version, the 395 reprint one, and I've read that entry a bunch of times to myself and never picked up on it. Hm. All right, now we're moving on to comments in the Who's Who and JLA sort of greatest hits episode uh, that we put together. And we got comments from uh, someone who says, whose name is just TFN, who says, This is a fantastic idea for a special episode. Now do a Zoom Yukonuri special with all his art. JSA, Teen Titans, Outsiders. Uh, Zoom, Zoom deserves his own Who's Who special, but that really. I mean, that really would just work as a gallery post, not a podcast, really, because it's you really just want to look at the stuff. So that wouldn't that, you know, I'd be perfectly fine with putting that up on the website, but it would really be more of a visual thing than us talking about it because you, you just want to look at Zoom's great stuff. You know, Teen Titans one's not a bad idea, especially with them launching a series. Just saying. I, I did um, think that there were other themes that we could do, which we'll get to. Some of the people comment about that later on. All right. Then I uh, heard from our buddy Mark Baker-Wright. He says, he's quoting one of us from the show, where one of us said, Lena Lying, that hot redhead that everyone goes out with in high school. And he follows it up by saying, why did I get this memo? I wish I'd gone out with a hot redhead in high school, or a hot blonde, or a hot brunette. <laughs> you, you must Sorry, have Mark. said that. I have no frame of reference for anything like that, so I never would have it said that. does sound a little bit like something I'd say. Yeah, weird. Uh, Chris Franklin says, man, Shag was snarkier back then, wasn't he? Just like most sitcom characters, he's mellowed over time. He'll be growing a beard <laughs> and wearing a tweed jacket next, just like Fonzie. Rob is eternal, like a river. Fun compilation. <laughs> That's the greatest compliment I've ever gotten in a feedback. Uh, I, I ironically, I have grown a beard, uh, and it's winter, so I have been known to wear a tweed jacket. So. I love it. And love uh, it. yes, Michael Bailey and I do frequently comment on how we used to be angry podcasters, and now we have really mellowed quite a bit. So good, good observation, Chris. Tim Price says, uh, "Man, now I have to start listening to old episodes of the Who's Who podcast. How am I going to find the time?" Sheesh. Thanks, Robin Chag. This compilation was a great idea. Just loved it. More clip shows, please. Plenty of great teams to choose from, but also maybe some non-team themes. Sword and Sorcery, Aaron and Warlord, for example. Who's WTF? Brother Power with the Geek, Inferior 5, Angel and the Ape, Sugar and Spike. You get the idea. See, Tim, there was no Sugar and Spike listing. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to do a whole episode of us just picking out entries where we talk about it for a couple of seconds and we just go, next, or like, I'm sick of this one. So let's let's – do that. I, I like all these ideas. They're just so much work. That's the problem. They're just they're so long to put together. 
Uh, Chris Lewis says, I'm so late adding my comments to this podcast. When you ask for suggestions for other clip shows, my mind immediately jumped to who's who Mortz, the lamest heroes, the daftest villains, the most pointless supporting characters, the most backwater planets, and least useful technology. Again, great <laughs> idea, a lot of work. Could we just do all like the hot entries, you know, like Dolphin, uh, Catwoman, um, all the ones that you know were very formative to us in our youth? That, that could work. Brought to you by the League of Women Voters. So Diablo Frank says, uh, best intentions are given, uh, but I'm not sure condolences to California, Texas, and Florida are entirely welcome from the Fire and Water Network. Now, a lot of folks read that and didn't quite get what he was referring to because Rob gave this nice statement in the front end about people uh, with hurricanes and the and the fires and everything going on. It was just thoughts were going out because I was in the path of Hurricane Irma at that point when you did that episode. And uh, and even I read it, it was kind of like, geez, Frank, that's not very nice. Then I, then I got it. The Fire and Water podcast giving what was happening to those states that um, yeah it probably wasn't very welcome coming from the fire and water network huh, good point i got it but you know i also know that frank finds a way to make anything unpleasant so that's just <laughs> what he does so all right we're going to move on now to who's who in star trek rob and cisco are going to handle these i'm going to sit down and take a quick nap unless you mention bear claw or who killed captain kirk so just let me know when it's my turn to talk enjoy those sad sack comics uh, Ryan Daly says, uh, Chicken's Captain Kirk looks a lot like his Blackhawk. Uh, that is true, but his Blackhawk looked like his Dominic Fortune and looked like his Scorpion and looked like it. I mean, that's Chicken kind of had that uh, really strong-chinned uh, action hero kind of look to all his characters, which, is, you know, I kind of like. It's not a knock, but it's just kind of Chicken kind of drew that same kind of guy in, in every uh, in every one of these features. Siskoid himself wrote in to say, So I remembered which Mego dolls I had. Spider-Man. Those red hands are very vivid in my memory now. Batman and Robin. Where they, where they disappeared to is anybody's guess. Were they even mine or some visiting uncles? I don't know. Has your don't memory know. memory been jogged at all since then, Cisco? No, uh, and uh, the, the the apartment where I you know I see it in the apartment where we lived, uh, at, which puts it at my be, my being like seven years old because we moved around quite a lot, you know. So um, my mom kept kept getting evicted or whatever, <laughs> something like that. Um, yeah, no, I don't remember much more than that. I know those dolls were in the house at least a day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's very specific. Wow. <laughs> okay. Uh, Sphinx Magoo says, browsing through the pictures, I saw the Horda, which sent my brain careening down memory lane. Does anyone here remember the screensaver program After Dark? Back in the day, settle in kids, a long story, before screens came with built-in projections so they don't burn in whatever screen you're on while you're at the bathroom, After Dark kept that screen damaged from having them playing cute animations. They were famous for being the first to offer a cool fish tank before Microsoft and for their flying toasters. Anyway, there was a series of Star Trek screensavers, and one of them including the Horda. The Horda would burrow around on a replica of your screen's desktop, making tunnels, laying eggs, and burning the phrase, no kill, into rocks. Sometimes Spock would come out and do a Vulcan mind meld. I had literally forgotten this existed until Sphinx brought it up. It all came flooding back. I remember the Horde of Screensaver because I had it. I thought it was so charming. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I don't. Uh, it was <laughs> amazing. Nothing. Yeah. yeah. The only thing I remember would, and this isn't even quite like that, you could do a, something where it would change your desktop to an L-Cars setting. So all your icons became those buttons, like the next-gen touchpad stuff. Um, that was early, probably 98 or so. But beyond That's that, cool. I, nothing like that. No. Chris Franklin remembers it because he says, my college roommate and fellow trekker had that screensaver. Thanks for reminding me. So there you go. And Chris is the only one that did, not the only one that had it. And then Sphinx Mooka came back and said, much love for the Gorn chat. I know Gene Roddenberry didn't want to go into the lost of science route for people in costumes for aliens, but the Gorn was my favorite. Followed up by the white gorilla with the unicorn horn, the Magadu. 
Uh, Rob's description of the Mego Gorn figure was spot on. Well, thank you, Sphinx. Yeah, that is the, the Gorn is looking at me here as I'm as I'm reading this. I still love that doll. Uh, David L. Madman, great name, says I was all set to listen to this, but I'm afraid, in all good conscience, I cannot. I had been led to believe that this podcast was available in Klingon, which is how I listen to all my Star Trek podcasts. I didn't get my PhD in Klingon from Klingon U to listen to podcasts about Star Trek in English. Sorry, guys. And then he ends it with Totesach Esvaj Soswil, I guess. I don't know if I'm saying Klingon right. <laughs> That's not bad. You, you've got that New Jersey accent in there, but uh, <laughs> close hmm. enough. All right. Thank you. I think. Uh, yeah. Chris Franklin goes, uh, I bet good money Siskoid speaks Klingon. Because he speaks English better than I do. Um, that's first of all, that's not true. Uh, second of all, I do not speak Klingon fluently, but I will admit to this: um, at one point, I used to do cooking shows, <laughs> sort of in Klingon, with the Klingon, you know, phrase book, uh, with my roommates. So we, we used to make like Klingon. Well, they weren't really Klingon meals. It's like French toast, but we're using Klingon to to explain it. Has any of this ever been recorded? That's what I was about to uh, ask. No, this, this is uh, this is a long time ago. It was like twelve years ago. So sort of um, amazing blackmail. They had recording devices <laughs> twelve years ago, Cisco. Yeah, I know, but I would not have thought of you know podcasting or YouTubing or all that. None of that was on my radar oh. at all. Oh my god, what a lost opportunity! I know. Oh. Well, if ever uh, Emily and Carolyn come back to Moncton. I'll try to get the group back together. That would be amazing. Oh, my God. I would, I would kill to hear that. Uh, <laughs> David S. Gutierrez says, A few notes. That Baylock still in the closing credits scared me as a little kid. I'd run out of the room before he still appeared and then back when it was off screen. <laughs> um, to Rob's point about the regret of not making time for someone, I passed up the chance to meet Art Nodell at San Diego Comic-Con for some useless Batman panel or something. That was his final year there, and he passed away. Big regret. Yeah, I hear you. I think that's when I was talking about not seeing uh, William Wyndham because he was at a, a San Diego one year, and I wish I had seen him. I, I always regret passing that up. Uh, Gene Hendricks says the best explanation explanation excuse me for the different Klingon races I heard was out of the FASA role playing game. What is FASA, guys? It's a uh, role playing game company. Oh, uh, they okay. made uh, at the time in the eighties. They had a Star Trek game, and they had a Doctor Who licensed uh-huh. game as okay, well. Okay, got yeah. it. All right. Yeah. Uh, then I thought maybe it was an acronym for something. Event- essentially, well, it pro- probably is, but we don't know what that okay, is. Okay, all right. Essentially, the race with the ridges were the Imperial Klingons. Then they interbred with whatever race bordered them, both to get more of an intelligence on how they operated, but also to make those races more at ease when dealing with the Empire. Okay, all right. Uh, he also mentions, and Ilya is pronounced Ilya. Damn it. Sorry, I don't know what came over me. I think you do, Gene. I think you do. And uh, <laughs> D, D comments. He says, Bearclaw. Shag, wake up. Bearclaw. At the time of DC's original comic series, stories were not brought to Gene's attention. Licensing was a bit of a haphazard affair and wouldn't become such a rigid institution until TNG was well underway. No comments on Bearclaw, anybody? <laughs> yeah, Shag. Damn it! See, I, the one moment I picked to take the headset off so I could reach across the room I said to get my, bear claw. my I gave you a moment. Well, I said, "Shag, bear I know, claw." I I grabbed my Doctor Who FASA book to see if I could figure what FASA stands for. <laughs> anyway, uh, any bear claw. On bear claw. He was great. He was he was the wasn't he the angry one in the book all the time? Bear. Yeah, he, yeah, he was. He was an, the angry um, Native American 
character. Yeah. Uh, quite a jerk, really. And he used to, he was racist too, if I remember right. But yeah, I would, uh, I'd get angry when I was listening to the Star Trek Who's Who podcast because you guys would say stuff and I'm like, you guys are the Star Trek experts and I know more about the comics? Ah! So, anyway. <laughs> and I can't find out what FASA stands for. Damn it, all that effort and it just says FASA. All right. uh, he also yeah. mentions Gorn. The Gorn did appear on Star Trek Enterprise, which is why I never saw it, but it was in the Mirror Universe, so all bets uh, first appearances in the proper universe are off in that case. I will grant Mr. Franklin that the CG looked terrible. It didn't look terrible. I watched it just the other night. It wasn't that bad. It was fine. Um, I mean, it's not the classic Gorn look. Uh, and we love it because it's kind of, you know, dated and silly. It's it's of its time. Uh, he also has a note on Iotians, uh, you know, the gangsters. When the DS9 producers were looking for 30th anniversary episodes, one of the ideas was revisiting Sigma Iosha and finding everyone walking around in Starfleet uniforms as a result of McCoy's communicator being left behind. It's a neat idea. Yeah, that would have been amusing. Uh, I like I like that they use the tribbles. I mean, that's the that's the better idea where. You know, they actually can interact with real characters from the 60s. And then uh, let's move on to, De- to Devin Clancy. Uh, he says, I think the major source for background info you are forgetting is the FASA role-playing game. Uh, he links it to it again. It is most likely the source of the added Andorian content. They were writing a ton of their own stuff at that point with little to no inference, uh, interference. I'm sorry from Paramount. About a year later, when TNG was on the air, the Roddenberry office cracked down on everything they were publishing, supposedly because it contradicted a lot of Gene's ideas. The soon extended, they soon extended the crackdown to the books and comics, leading to a long period in which there was no intercontinuity from book to book and some very restrictive guidelines for all licensed creators. Uh, then they even uh, went so far as to tell Peter David that Kirk was no longer interested in women in the period after Star Trek V. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Uh, yeah, that's because at that point, I think FASA was, you know, FASA was, it's not so much the Star, the Star Trek role-playing game as it is the uh, Starfleet Battles strategy game that they had. So a lot of their universe, if you will, was very, very militaristic. Uh, so it wasn't like a, it, it didn't become a game of exploration as so much as a game of, ships fighting ships, which, you know, is, is not a facet of Star Trek that's necessarily true to the property. Hmm. All right. Uh, we got a comment from Tom Zoller, and he says, I love this episode, guys. I read the heck out of these issues. Great. And uh, he also says, um, as far as Spock being tied to Sherlock Holmes, so this was a thing. Uh, there used to be the Star Trek fanzine articles collected into book form called Best of Trek. I seem to recall that being mentioned there. I recall, too, that in the spirit of that Doc Savage biography, that they did tie Amanda Grayson into Dick Grayson, because the writer, not being a comic fan, decided that Dick Grayson took over for Bruce Wayne at some point. Apparently was completely unaware of how the DC multiverse explains why Batman was in the 40s and the 80s. What do they teach in schools? <laughs> so yeah, I, you know, I have that I, I, that's the book I was mentioning you know, the article I mentioned. Uh, I have that same book. I just could never find it in time for the podcast. Still haven't. I don't know where, where it is. Uh, he, he continues, he says, Rob, I'm sure you've expected a huge litany of corrections, but that was all I heard, really. One little note, though. I don't know if David knew who his father was in Star Trek II. His line about that Boy Scout you used to run with 
run around with makes me think he it makes me think he didn't as it's too dismissive. And Carol's reply was very much of the you don't know who you're talking about variety. But some of that could have just been trying to hide it from the audience. But that's all opinion too. No, yeah, I think it's, clear, right. it's clearly obvious. He had no idea Kirk was his dad. No, nah. like halfway through the movie. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Uh, Jeff R says, uh, "Well, they certainly made it easy for me as far as the egregious omissions." Uh, there's a Klingon page, but there are no pages for, you know, the single Klingons, Kor, Kang, and Koloth uh, should all be in there. Kalos, uh, the Unforgettable, this should be in there. Uh, and Krug. Uh, and then Chris Franklin uh, chimed in to say uh, Zephyrin, Zephyrin Cochran, Zephyrin frickin' Cochran, should have gotten his own entry. <laughs> He's relegated to the appendix, yeah. Hmm. Was Kalos a thing or, or in the original series, or was that a next-gen creation? Sure, he appears in the uh, Abraham Lincoln episode. Oh, gosh. Durr. Yeah, okay. Uh, Ange chimes in. He says, love this episode. I haven't seen the original shows in years, but hearing you talk about the characters brought them bubbling back from the memory bank. I have to say that I love the Horda. Maybe it says something about our backgrounds, Chris, but I always thought it looked more like a shambling eggplant parmesan than it did meatloaf. The idea that one of them became a Starfleet officer is ludicrous. I wish I saw that. The Horda also involves my favorite, damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a line. Damn it, Jim. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. Uh, <laughs> Philemon writes in to say, stellar show, guys. See what I did there? I'm late to the party, but I couldn't be more thrilled to finally get to these issues. In my mind, they are the last of the real who's who's. I'll hang with you through the Legion and yawn loose leaf editions, but this is really <laughs> the end of my enthusiasm. Well, he's the master of the unpopular opinions. So. That's, that's that is true. absolutely correct. Yeah. The man loves Jericho, so and, yeah. And, and he, I think he said something like Citizen Kane was an overrated movie or something. Uh, oh. Yeah. Uh, he also said uh, the background of the Christine Chapel entry is brilliant. The crossword pattern, as you called it, is meant to invoke the onboard computer lightboard. That is because Majel Barrett, who played Nurse Chapel, also voiced the computer. We both can't believe you missed that inside joke. I yeah uh, yeah I don't I guess so. I mean, I get it. I knew that she was the voice of the computer, but yeah, I, I missed that that was meant to be a reference to that, so that's my fault. He mentions that Grey Morrow is a beast. That McCoy entry is perfection. True enough. Philemon finally got an opinion right. Good for you. Uh, Lucien <laughs> Desarvitson to say, I had so much fun listening to this podcast. There were all the crazies going on in the news, and it was a relief to escape reality with Star Trek and the comics, like peanut butter and chocolate. This comment was written in November 2016. Make your own conclusions. Mike Gillis writes in to say, really great episode, Rob. Siskoid and Chris are top-notch co-hosts, and the knowledge and passion for Trek is apparent. For as much as I love Trek and as much of it as I've seen, I'm humbled to hear just how much these two could pull from memory about these characters and their universe. You all made driving my cat to the vet a lot more fun. Mm-hmm. I'm glad Zira is better. She's, she's much better now. She's adorable. Okay, cat. good. Yeah. Uh, and Michael Bailey writes in, he say, it turns out I would get quite a lot. Rob, Siskoid, and Chris were informative, funny, and insightful. I even missed Shag and wondered what he would have brought to the conversation. That's never been said Bear before. Bearclaw. More than anything, this episode made me want to finally get off my ass and watch <laughs> the entirety of the original series. I know they aren't all winners. And among his uh, random comments after that is, uh, have any of you seen the movie Free Enterprise? If not, I recommend it. And I want to say here that Shag and I plan to cover it on an episode of Give Me That Star Trek. In the Hell future. To the, yeah, I can't wait. And Shag was nice enough to send me a copy, so uh, thank it's you, Shag. It's the only way I could get him to agree to do it. 
Uh, now we're moving on to Who's Doing Star Trek issue two, the final issue. Iced D says uh, re- regarding Gary Mitchell, Mitchell was the cause of one of the most infamous bits of non-canon, the Star Trek X-Men crossover. <laughs> I sometimes I forget that that exists, and then I remember all over again. Uh, yeah. well, the, it, it there's a sequel. There was, wasn't there a comic book and a novel, or just oh, a novel? Dear or? God, there was it a comic book. There absolutely, yeah. was a comic book. I remember that. It may have been novelized. And then, okay. then there was also a TNG um, X-Men one as well. Yeah. I think, yeah. I, you know, I guess because X-Men was Marvel's biggest property, that that was going to be inevitable crossover. But, like, you know, Star Trek and the Guardians of the Galaxy, maybe. But the X-Men, really? But, okay, you know, <laughs> that's whatever you got to do to sell some books. He also <laughs> says, uh, Harry Mudd, according to the IDW comics, Mudd is a woman in the Kelvin timeline. What? Um, the- how does that happen? <laughs> Why not? That makes Mud's Angels a whole different kind of episode. Yeah, he's a madam. Romulans, uh, the the notion. Uh, he also says Romulans. The notion of the preservers taking um, Vulcans to another planet was taken from the again FASA role playing game. A year after Who's Who in Star Trek's publication, Diane Duane and Peter Morwood's novel, The Romulan Way, put forth the notion of a Vulcan philosophical schism, which was eventually adopted as the Romulan's true origin. Sorry, Fassa, once again, overwritten. Um, and then on Uhura, he says, Siskoid is right about the Spock-Uhura relationship. Watch the man trap and Charlie X again. And, you know, of course I'm right. Uh, and uh, on Starships, he says, uh, Ron Friends didn't publish the technical manual. That was Franz Joseph, which uh, was just uh, sort of, uh, I think Gene, Gene Hendricks later said uh, that, you know, he was sorry that he got the technical manual uh, author wrong. Uh, it's, it's an easy screw up to make, right? Yeah, he mentions, he says, excuse me while I, tell, while I tear up my geek card. It's all right, Gene. It's, uh, it's, it's oh. a safe space for everybody here. It's fine. Ron Friends, Franz Joseph. I yeah. mean, we, we're talking about Ron Friends quite a lot. Franz List. It's all the same. It's all good. Uh, yeah, David Escudiera yeah. says, what's this nonsense of some dude named Franklin griping over Christian Slater's appearance in Star Trek VI? Can I say, all it takes for you, for David Goodis to love you, is to get to, if he uh, interviews you. Like, he interviewed Christian Slater once, and now they're like besties. That's, that's all it takes. You just give Gutierrez an interview, and you can do no wrong. It's really kind of pathetic. On this issue, Jeff R's omissions include uh, V'ger, but um, that's someone we mentioned, and Trelane, who also got stuck in the appendix. Uh, he also says the Empire falling is a necessary thing for the mirror, mirror universe because to do otherwise makes Mirror Spock, and thus Spock by extension, a failure. So it makes sense that the DC comic and the DS9 writers went that same way. And the less said about the books by Shatner's ghostwriter, the better. Uh, to which I'll answer that the there's also the Mirror Enterprise D book. Uh, that I reference it was Diane Duane's Dark Mirror. So that one kept the Empire going regardless. So I guess Spock's a failure in some of these timelines. Is that one any good? Because it's sitting on my shelf to be read right now. Uh, well, I read it like a long time ago. And I read it at a time where, when I thought, wow, Mirror, Mirror Universe, it's cool. But yeah, you got to read it just to see what they do with Troy. Gotcha. And they, yep. ju- they just did a Mirror Universe comic book too, just recently, a brand new one. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Yep. All right, Iced D says, I'd love to get a straight answer on who wrote the most outlandish parts of the Shatner Trek novels, but I have a feeling that's a secret both Shatner and the Reeves-Stevens pairs will take to their graves. <laughs> uh, I think it's probably Bill. It's <laughs> safe bet. <laughs> Android's in to say, the most grievous omission from this episode, any one of the hosts deadpanning Captain David 
is dead when discussing the Savic page. I mean, seriously, I was waiting for you guys to get to her, get to her page so I could hear someone say the famous line in the famous wooden style. And any of you could have said it, anyone, but no. And then Siskoid chimes in, we said it in episode one. And then Ange came back and said, I need it every time from every member of the <laughs> network. So, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll go first. I'll, uh, let, me, let me get into the proper frame. Okay. Ange. Oh, that's too much. I'll do it again. Okay, here we go. Ange. David is dead. David is dead. I wasn't even on the stupid episode, but whatever. Ange. <laughs> David is dead. There. Are you happy now? Is she dead enough? Right. Uh, Sir Print writes in to say, not owning this issue makes me think I wouldn't like, made me think I wouldn't like this episode, but I must say that I enjoyed it quite a bit. It was entertaining, and I realized that I knew more about Trek than I thought. When discussing actors who gave up a role that went on to have lasting appeal, it was ironic that you chose Father Mulcahy, because in the original film, of course, he was played by Rene Aubergenois, who then went on to play Odo in DS9. Now, I don't... Yeah, I don't. Well, thing is, I don't know if I said that exactly because what I was, I think, what I commented on was that the actor who played, and we will get into this in Mashcast, but the actor who played Father Mulcahy in the pilot of Mash is different than Rene Aubergenois or uh, William Christopher. I think that's what I was referring to because uh, that's it's like he was so close to landing the role for all 250 episodes and then he missed out on it. But obviously, Rene Aubergenois probably doesn't uh, regret not being on Mash because he's had a huge career. He's been working constantly for 40-some years, so I'm sure he's perfectly happy with how things turned out for him. I'm consistently surprised when I'm watching older shows from the like late 70s, early 80s, how many times he turns up. Yep. It's he's just in, amazing. He's in movies, TV. He was, a regular on, uh, he was a regular on Benson, so he had sure. his turn on a sitcom. Yeah. 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 He was in the 76 King Kong, which I talked about on Film and Water. He's just, the guy's had a, he's always working, that guy. Um, and, I, and I prefer to say, Rene, I was a wall. Michael Bailey says, it struck me as funny, uh, it struck me as a bit funny, Gene, I will cut you over Star Trek in motion picture, Hendrix, seems so dismissive of Star Trek V and Generations. I'm not saying you should like either of those films, but maybe some solidarity to the other underdogs of the Star Trek film phrase might be in order. I think V is a bit underrated, but then again, I like Generations, so what the hell do I know? That's true, true enough there, Michael. Uh, Chris Franklin says, that was actually me who brought up Kurt Swan, and I did it just to give Rob grief. Thank you, Chris. And he says, as much as I love Swan, I do agree that sometimes his aliens do look a bit too goofy and Hanna-Barbera-like. See, Rob? I admitted it. <laughs> nice you can grow, Chris. Uh, Mike Gillis says, I suspect the hardest part Dr. Gillian Taylor had acclimating to the 23rd century came from having to convert to the metric system. It probably wouldn't have been easier transition if she were Canadian. <laughs> uh, it also says, I've, already, I've always really loved the character of Harry Mudd, and I suspect that the actor's unavailability is probably why the character of Cyrano Jones was created in The Trouble with Tribbles. Because that episode feels like it was originally written for Mudd. I never thought of that, but it's true. It's kind of one of his schemes. Uh, and, uh, so, you know, yeah, Cyrano Jones is just uh, Harry Mudd in, uh, in a fur coat. It's kind of like in the Batman TV series. They, had a, they introduced a character called the Puzzler, and that was just because they couldn't get Frank Gorshin back to play the Riddler. Like, he was busy <laughs> with something, so they just came out with another character. Uh, Philemon says, totally a personal preference, but I would have much more enjoyed seeing the television versions of our major characters to be in the limelight over the movie ones. Janice Rand is a prime example, as the Serpent version is far superior to the picture that is in the foreground of her entry. I mean, I assume the reason for that is because the movies were, that was what was going on at the time. That was, you know, that, that was the current iteration of the characters. 
Well, yeah. also and the, the appearing comic, in the comics. Right. There it is yeah, right there. Exactly. Thank you, Cisco. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So uh, that's going to do it for the feedback for Who's Who is Star Trek. Thanks, everybody. I really appreciate it. I, I came into the shows with kind of, you know, certainly more knowledge on Trek than I am of Legion, but I still don't consider myself a Trek expert. So I really appreciate uh, Gene and Siskoid and Chris for helping me out on those shows. And they came out really well, thanks to those guests. It was great. And, uh, you know, we're going to go to break here. And we're going to come, when we come back, we're going to do our Legion uh, feedback, and we're also going to do our appendix. So I think until then, uh, we should just leave everybody with live long and prosper. Space, the final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Give Me That Star Trek, its ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions. To boldly go where many have gone before. Give me that Star Trek. A new episode every month only at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes. And we're back from break, folks, and we are going to jump into our Legion coverage specifically who's who in the legion of superheroes the seven issue crossover that we spread across four episodes and uh like rob is a complete moron when it comes to star trek and he thanks the people <laughs> i am a complete moron when it comes to legion and i need to thank little russell burbage dr Ange, kyle benning tim wallace and siskoid in fact for helping me get through those episodes and make it somewhat interesting for the listeners actually you guys you guys from the legion super bloggers were amazing i i am a neophyte when it comes to the legion knowledge compared to you guys and it was an absolute hoot recording those episodes so we're going to jump right into your feedback from uh legion issues one and two okay our first comment's going to come from al sedano and he writes in before i get to the spoiler onto the important topic of hottest female legionnaire though maybe not hottest who's who entry meaning uh so hot but not necessarily good entry light last lightning last Elia Rands, Five Year Later Laurel Gam, Phantom Girl, and Atmos. Uh, or no, I'm sorry, he gives us a spoiler about Atmos here. Says, I'm pretty sure that Atmos was killed in the Five Year Later run. He was the test victim for the Dominators while they were doing a test run of Bion, which is B-I-O-N. And if you forget who Bion was, he was the com- he was Computo taken by the Dominators and turned into a Legion version of Amazo. Yeah, that was in the Five YL series. I do remember. He, he looked really cool. He's kind of had a blue and white scheme going there. Yeah, it was like white skin. It's all true. The Dominators released a fictional story about his death at Kundish hands, though. So, uh, you know, always running their game. And also true that uh, Lightning Glass is the hottest Legionnaire. Yeah, I slaughtered what Al was trying to say. Basically, what Al was trying to say is these are the hottest Legionnaires, but not necessarily the hottest entries. He he says Light Lass, uh, Laurel Gann from five years later, and Phantom Girl. Two of those are correct. So well done, Al. Then we go on to comments from Joe X, who, uh, again, I, at one point in life, I did call him my buddy, but he he just slams on me in some of his comments. So I don't know. I think he and I are in the skids now. Anyway, he writes, Antenna Boy was a newscaster in Five Years Later. Now you go, Three-Eyed Sam uh, from Prophet Wham. So I had forgotten about that. That's right. Antenna Boy was. And he goes on to say, one thing I liked about the Levitt's run is that he kept the membership groups together. The people you joined with were the people you hung out with. That's pretty cool. And then issue number two, we had talked a lot about those DC indexes. You know, um, you could campaign, there's a crisis one, all these different things. He said the DC indexes were published by Independent Comics Group, that was the name, which was really Eclipse Comics. Yep, I have quite a few of those. Uh, he also says, uh, uh, he asks, Dream Girl, anyone know when she added the star shaped beauty mark? 
So I had to do that little research. Uh, it's in Superboy and the Legion number 233, November 1977. She doesn't have it in her previous appearance, and she has it there. So no explanation. You know, so just, is that cover dated November 1977? Yeah, or is yeah. that – okay, all right. Because yeah. in December 1977, actually, release date, Firestorm came out. So that's why I was asking. Mm. Uh, Empress, uh, he says, what, was any explanation given for the eye's weakness to kryptonite? And uh, none. And the weaknesses, uh, the weakness was at times even forgotten. I mean, there, there's the, the Empress even uses Green K against Supergirl in um, Legion of Superheroes number 303. So uh, I don't know if that was something they had plans for, but it never came to anything. Ah, okay. Uh, one of the characters we talked about was Flint Broge, which is B-R-O-J-J. He was based on the real-life Legion flan- fans, Mike Flynn and Harry Brogedes. Wow, it's a complicated name. A creators of the fanzine Legion Outpost. That's cool. That's a nice nod to the fans. That's great. And he says, Haga looks like the old witch from the EC comics. And yes, she totally does. Good call there. Uh, let me pick up a comment here from Ange, uh, he talks about Block. He says, the what are his powers question haunts me. Big, strong, and vulnerable. Got it. But can he add mass to himself? Neutralize others' powers? Something else? Uh, he, that wasn't really clear. And so, so I went to check the DC Heroes RPG uh, game, of course. And in those terms, Block's density increase is always on. So he, he can't add mass but he's more massive than his size would indicate. But then Martin Gray came back to say that in his first appearance, Lightlass is using her powers on block, and she says he's adding more mass all the time, so she has to compensate. So it seems that Jerry Conway originally intended some kind of Starboy deal, uh, or like a, a personal density field just for block. Uh, but uh, um, yeah, no, that just wasn't the way it was portrayed later on. Interesting. Uh, hard from our buddy Michael Bailey. He says, Shag mentioned the adjectiveless Legion title. I kept talking about the adjectiveless <laughs> Legion title. He, uh, Michael says, this is important because it separates it from the Amazing Legion, the Spectacular Legion, the Sensational Legion, and Web of Legion, which is all about the Spider Guild. And I came back. I, just, I knew it. I screwed up big time. I kept meaning to say acronym legion but i kept saying adjectiveless legion now never mind the fact that none of the guests on the podcast ever corrected me <clears throat> so you thought it was funny yeah uh, yeah yeah but i kept saying adjectiveless instead and then mike turned it into some really good jokes and hats off to you buddy for working in spider guild that was well done especially for someone who hasn't been a lifelong legion fan was the spider guild at all in legion because that was an omega men thing don't steal Mike's moment, damn it. You Canadians are the worst. Well, he's no saint. Okay, so uh, <laughs> he, he went for you, but, uh, you know, um, I got your back. Uh, David is Gutierrez, speaking of people who go after you. Um, yeah, no kidding. Uh, yeah, he says uh, uh, Russell B. is a natural uh, – is a natural, yeah. Russell Burbage is a national treasure, and uh, to, to which I say an international treasure because I, I totally endorse this. I would also say he's a natural treasure as well. He's an amazing yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, he was the MVP. I mean, his he should be on here instead of me because his knowledge of uh, silver and bronze age legion is far. You know, I was the guy going, yeah, yeah, but don't forget the after five YL reboot, reboot. Uh, I was, I was that guy, you know, on the shows. Um, well, quite frankly, you're cheaper to get though because you're already under contracts, so and we don't have to pay that big retainer fee. We have to pay with Russell, so that's that's it came down to money. That's true. Uh, he, he also asks, uh, what happened to the Green Lanterns? 
So, uh, you know, I, I seem to remember Cal Rayner uh, bringing someone a ring, a distant ancestor in the post-zero hour 30th century. Anyway, what happened to the Green Lanterns in the 30th century? Uh, they were around, uh, but banned from Earth because Universal was such a jerk. <laughs> That's what happened. <laughs> you know, uh, he, pulled a, he pulled a Sinestro, basically. And Ron Vidar, his son, was in fact Earth's Green Lantern, but working undercover. So later, comics would explain that Amogo had died, and because it played a key role in distributing the rings, the core wasn't functional anymore. And then the, the Daxamite Sodam Yat was last seen recruiting a new core, which he thought was nevertheless necessary. But of course, that, that whole timeline, those whole comics just kind of ended, and we don't get a payoff to that. Um, now, he the also, thing, yeah. The thing about ahead. Kyle Rayner that you're remembering there, David, uh, where Kyle Rayner gives a ring to a distant ancestor in the, in the post-hour 30th century, if I remember correctly, that was part of the Circle of Fire crossover, which turned out that all of those Green Lanterns that he was giving rings to or meeting were, turned out they weren't real at all. They were just fig, uh, figments of his imagination. And uh, he also asked just how does the Substitute Legion work? If there's a legion of these guys, I'm guessing not all of them are on missions at all times. So are they are there benched guys? When does a sub get called to replace a legion member? Does an academy grad get subbed and hope a spot opens up? Uh, no, that's that's not it at all. That's, that's <laughs> not. It's not a farm team, bro. <laughs> no, no, no. The, the sub started out as an official an unofficial group, but eventually they achieved. A reserve status, but they could be called in during times of great crisis or just to babysit Metropolis if the real Legion was away on a mission. Uh, they don't actually sub for actual Legionnaires as part of the Legion of Superheroes, and cadets, for their part, are not guaranteed a spot on the team and must try out like everyone else. It just gives them, you know, courses and how to better achieve that. Uh, it helps them hone their powers. Uh, it's a help, but they usually they don't have any illusions about their eligibility since uh, if like if they have a redundant power set, um, you know, like Shadow Kid knows he's not getting into the Legion unless something bad happens to his sister. Uh, anyway, uh, we did talk about that much more in the relevant subs episode, didn't we? Uh, Rob Kelly, who is that guy? <laughs> he says uh, he, he says, I did it. I did it. I made it through this whole episode. Where is my flight ring? So what do you say, Shag? Um, you know, even Legion rejects got rings or Twinkie belts. <laughs> How about we give him a ring and then we arrange uh, for Booster Gold to steal it from him and travel into oh. it. That'd be the Harsh. way to go. Harsh. All right. Then we heard from uh, Michael Bailey again. He says, it took me a long time to get the Legion. To be fair, I mainly bought the Superman books for the first seven years or so of my collecting life. And he uh, and the Legion were barely on speaking terms during this time, so I did not come of age during a time when they were besties. Uh, he goes on to say, I was finding the five-year-later era in the cheap bins in the late 90s, and that changed things. I read the entire run up to Zero Hour and just loved it. That inspired me to get the Baxter series out of the same cheap uh, cheap bins, and I love that book as well. I even collected the team from the uh, from time to time. I enjoyed the series that spun out of the Legion Lost back in the early 2000s, and I wholeheartedly agree uh, with Ange that Supergirl and the Legion is superhero issues came out after Infinite Crisis were amazing. Awesome, Mike. Heard from Ryan Daly. I'm not exactly sure who he is. I think he was writing us from prison. Uh, he says, it took me a while to get the Legion. Even after reading the whole three-boot era and sampling of other eras, I just couldn't get into the concept of the care or the characters. But the Secret Origins podcast, never heard of it, forced me to read more. And when I got to the Great Darkness saga, I fell hard for the Legion. Yeah, he, 
he names Bouncing Boy as his favorite regular Legionnaire. And I was there when that happened uh, because he, there was like a one-page, uh, you know, just a one-page origin story in one of the issues. And he in- invited a couple of the girls from the Oh Hot More Not podcast. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. And my- yeah, and myself, and you know, he was fawning over, you know, falling all over himself about Bouncing Boy, uh, and then later on he says, uh, "Yes, why isn't Persuader related to Feralad? Their costumes look the same, and it's true. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, designed by the same kind of people. I, I don't know, um, but there, there really isn't the, a, an untold story of Arrow <laughs> and Persuader, you know, being related." Fair enough. I heard from our buddy Chris Franklin. He says, I'm a passing Legion fan. I know quite a bit of the history. I bought the book off and on during my younger days and followed the Legionnaire series when it launched. I even bought the first issue of Who's Who in the Legion, but honestly, the format put me off at the time. I'm with Kyle. It reminded me a lot of Ohatmu, and I felt like something put uh, their Marvel. I felt like someone put their Marvel chocolate in my DC's uh, peanut butter. Maybe it was Superman peanut butter. And there's also a bit of those DC indexes published by an arm of Eclipse Comics, oddly, and even more Marvel Saga mixed in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I don't know if I ever got around to mention this on the episode of the Legion. Chris sent me a picture he found in a store. Someone had framed the cover of issue number seven of Legion of Superheroes, but it was more like poster size. Um, if any, I still haven't seen any feedback from anyone about this. So if anyone knows anything about the, a poster size version of the issue seven cover, please, please chime in. Um, David Ace Gutierrez says, also, Block almost made it into television in 1991. He was part of the four heroes in the, quote, ultimate powers, end quote, pilot by Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo. These, uh, if, these were the guys who were involved with the Flash TV series that David apparently interviewed, and therefore he gives a complete pass to. Is that how it works, Rob? I understand. <laughs> yeah. This is uh, one of the most insane pl- pilot ideas I've ever heard. Probably ever it, heard, it, period. It's crazy. You guys should, should do some research on it. But, yeah, Block was almost in it. You can imagine if you would have made it to TV before anyone else. Nuts. By the way, we would be uh, remiss with talking about the Legion without mentioning um, uh, Supergirl. Cisco, have you seen it yet? What do you mean? Uh, the Legion in, in uh, Supergirl? No, I'm, uh, I'm at the end of season two is oh, where okay. I'm at. I, I'm woefully behind myself, so I haven't seen it either. But I've seen some still shots, so looks like they're all going out to a motorcycle rally. So, um, <laughs> heard from our good foot buddy, Michelle Fife. He says, having grown up on Burn Superman, I don't require Superboy to be part of the mythos either. Thank you, Michelle. That is the best comment of the day. Uh, then he says, Dr. Mayavale, uh, Steve Ditko drew a scattered bunch of the Legion superheroes issues, which feature his rare version of Superboy. He only drew Superman, Batman, and the Green Lantern once, actually, and never any other major DC star. Ditko's run included Mary, uh, Mayavale's first appearance and co-creation with J.M.D. Mateus, I assume. Very cool. Her our buddy Al Girding, he says, um, I would sneak the Legion slash Adventure Digest into grade school and try to read them during class. That's awesome, Al. I love that so much. And, uh, and by the way, he, he wrote a much longer comment. And what he does is in between every sentence, he just puts the word Dawnstar. And he says another sentence, Dawnstar. Another sentence, Dawnstar. It's hilarious. And then P.S. Dawnstar is my favorite Legionnaire and she's the hottest. <laughs> That's um, not necessarily correct, but I'm, I'm not going to say you're wrong. It's, it's pretty impressive. Uh, our buddy Martin Gray wrote in to say, it doesn't matter how much uh, Russell's uh, Russell's friend pronounces her name, uh, as we were saying, Charma. He says Charma's not a real name either. We're talking we're talking a woman who claim who charms men. It can't be pronounced as anything but Charmer. So that makes sense. So rather than being Charma, which is what we kept saying, it's more like a, a slurred version of Charmer. So it's Charma. Is it well, Charma? It's- 
it sounds like his uh, accent is playing tricks on him there. I mean, you know, a Brit would say Chama. <laughs> so the ER would still sound like an A, but for us on this side of the ocean, you know, we need an A is, is the A uh, that, that we recognize. Well, they pronounce Dalek with an R anyway, so... Dalek, yeah. Uh, He also has a strange question here about Colossal Boy. Uh, If Colossal Boy was DC's first Jewish superhero as of 1980, who was the second? Uh, Fellow size changer Ray Palmer mentioned being Jewish in 1981. Was there anyone in between? So I did a little bit of research there, because I I thought Ragman had always been Jewish. Uh, but you know, and he's from earlier in the '70s. But uh, turns out he was Irish back in 1976, and was only made Jewish post-crisis. Ah, uh, see, what, I thought the same thing you did. Yeah. What about Martin Stein? You know, the, the um, half of I believe count, I, I, I don't think that came out till probably his secret. Um, boy, I'm getting embarrassing myself here. I think it was Secret Origins number four is when that came out. I could right. be wrong about that though. If not, then it may have been during the Ostrander run. Because truth is, religion just wasn't discussed by the superhero set. Uh, you know, it took 40 years for the thing to discuss his Jewish heritage. Uh, so uh, if Martin here says that the Adam came out in 81, I trust that he was indeed the second DC superhero to, uh, to you know, to, to mention it. Uh, so basically, you slander his accent and you try and get out of it by backing up his assertion. All right. I, I have a suggestion, if you don't mind. Uh, actually, we'd rather you didn't. Okay, never mind. What you got, Rob? Uh, well, no, there was a, there's a member of the Global Guardian, Seraph, who was from Israel. He's a Hebrew school teacher. He debuted in Super Friends number seven, uh, and I think that's in 1980. So I think he predates mm. Adam's. Uh, I, yeah, actually, no. He, I'm sorry. He debuted in Super Friends number seven, which is October 1977. Wow! Look at the but, big brain on Rob. So he was uh, technically the first, although sort of. Out of continuity, he is out of continuity. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Global Guardians are sort of you know they, they sort of just showed up in continuity kind of later and so until hmm. DC Comics presents, they weren't in continuity. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, interesting. <laughs> okay, I it's fair play. You know, for Rob to come with facts during Legion feedback, even though it's not Legion related, still rather impressive. Thank I'm, you. I'm shocked. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, Martin continues. Uh, he says the split purple and orange costume uh, on Duo Damsel was introduced for a special mission in which Lorna infiltrates two sides of one conflict. So it made sense. After that, good looking as it is, it made no sense for someone who specialized in espionage missions as the costume instantly identifies that there is two of her. Well, Martin, I, I think you're getting a little hung up there. I mean, if, if you're if you're going to say she's going to fail at the espionage mission because of her two colored costumes is going to give away her power, I think you just need to get up on all the espionage characters who have brightly colored costumes because they're all not going to work that well and sneaking around. Uh, heard from Philemon, which thank you guys for identifying earlier, who always seem to come out on the opposite side of anything logical reason to argument with me. He says, uh, I also learned, ha- oh, during during these podcasts, he learns a couple things. One of the things he learned was, I learned I have a steel bladder. It's so I was able to get through the whole episode without a potty break. Considering it was four hours, that's pretty impressive, Viloma. And he says, I really missed the serpent and other qualities that would have made this a real issue of who's who. But overall, I thoroughly enjoyed the issue. And he says, Animal Lad may be my favorite new character. Not only does he have cool Silver Agey powers, but he's described as having, quote, innate incorruptibility, end quote. I'm very sad that he never returned, as it seems like he would have made a great legionnaire. Okay. I will take your word for that, Philemon. He goes on to say, you're all crazy. Temporary or not, Dev M's Titan family moved to Earth where Sun wishes himself into a Kryptonian origin is everything. 
Uh, he's up there with Animal Lad as being my new favorite character. What he's talking about is Dev M. There's this horrible retcon where he, he was originally Kryptonian, and then post-Crisis they had to say, no, 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 he had wishing powers and make, turned himself into Kryptonian. It was ridiculous. And it was only temporary because then they retconned him again shortly after that. So <laughs> Philemon, congratulations. You have re-earned your uh, badge of insanity by saying you love Dev M. And uh, later on, point 13 here, says, I don't particularly care about the sexual orientation of characters as long as they aren't randomly changed for no reason other than PC inclusion. Uh, and he's looking at Alex Danvers on the Supergirl show. Uh, but Element Lad's outing always bothered me. It all starts with one panel joke where Jan says, I'm out of my element when it comes to romancing girls. Boom. Definitive proof that Element Lad is into guys, right? Anyway, the canon has been set now, but it will always bug me that it is built on such a shaky foundation. Well, Element Lat isn't gay, Philemon. Uh, he was merely embraced by the gay community, who felt maybe the whole bit was code enough. Uh, he was proven to still be LGBTQ+, when Siobhan was revealed to be a trans woman and, having lost access to her meds, had reverted to a male biology, uh, and he didn't care which made it clear, uh, you know, the way, the way he talked about it, that his culture was pansexual when it came to those things. So he, I don't think Element Lad's ever been gay or anything. So um, you, your, your anger is misplaced, sir. Uh, but, but to be fair that, to him, it was a general assumption for a very long time. From the fans, not from yes. writers. Right. Right. So, well, I think some of the writers were thinking it, but they just didn't necessarily put it in the story. Uh, I think Colleen, Colleen Duran has frequently said, she didn't she say she thought he was? Uh, sure, but I mean, it, that never made it to a story. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he says, uh, also, am I wrong or was Eiffel Ethel in the Legion of Substitute Heroes? I seem to remember she figured prominently in the special that came out. Well, she and Tusker were villains in that. Uh, and it's the, really, it's the only other way to go if you, uh, if you've been rejected by a Legion. You can become a substitute idiot or you can, you can become a villain. Uh, either way, um, you know, rejects have a, a life path in front of or two paths <laughs> yeah. i like that yeah uh we heard from dave dotty uh he says this was my first who's who podcast and i really enjoyed it i'll have to go back and listen to the rest i have a pretty winding road to the legion the first issue i ever bought was the final issue of the earth war right off the stands at a tender age of seven i read spotty issues throughout the bronze age including the digest of the silver age stories i like the idea of the uh, legion superheroes but somehow just never became a regular reader five years later made me a full-fledged fan exploring the team's entire history so i guess i'm neither fish nor fowl when it comes to the class Legion versus five year later. You know, it's going to be interesting as we go through these comments. There are a whole bunch of people that stand up and profess their love for the five year later era, and yet most people look at it, look back at it with like disdain. So, hey, go 5YL. Woohoo! Yeah, well, sometimes a deconstructionist experiment is interesting at the time. Uh, but uh, but also it's like where well, where do you go from there and that's it's a bit like we lost the characters oh, you know over time. Um, he also asks uh, since you're a big Five YL fan and he's asking Shag this Hero Points is going to cover the Legion Five YL source book since since it was written by the Buyer Bombs and includes a lot of information about the gap years that never appeared anywhere else. Right? Uh, let me ask my Hero Points partner on that. What do you think, buddy? Who also lives and dies by that book, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, I use that thing all the time. It's not even on the shelf. It's next to the couch. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, of course. There are three um, Legion source books, two for first edition and that one for uh, for second, uh, in addition to any modules. And I think we might be able to do, you know, a big, 
a big Legion episode somewhere down the line. Sure. That'd be fun. I would dig yeah. that. Um, heard from Paul and KC says, I'm with Shag. Introduction of the Legion was, uh, was the 5YL era, and Rock is always the leader. No point in voting. There you go, Paul. First of all, completely great view, viewpoint, and Paul is obviously a man of intellectual integrity. So, all right. Uh, heard my buddy Jimmy McGlinchey. He says, I started reading Legion from the reboot era and have all the showcase volumes, but the period between the last of the showcase volumes and the re- reboot is new territory to me, apart from the Great Darkness saga. I found the Giffen, uh, Lovitz Giffen stuff online, and I'm making my way through that and I'm really enjoying it. Awesome, Jimmy. That's fantastic. Heard my buddy Mark Lax. He says, my foray into the Legion of Superheroes didn't start until the early 90s and wasn't collecting them regularly until just before Zero Hour. Talk about confused. But I love the post-Zero Hour Legion. I hung on until around the Legion Lost, came back for a bit when Superboy was involved, and then came back for the three-boot, lost track again for a while, then came back when Supergirl joined. Things get hazy after that with the Legion story and action in the Legion of Three Worlds made my head spin. So it's great listening to all these entries and, uh, and from the early years until just after the crisis. It's Legion 101. Glad you enjoyed it, Mark. And uh, interesting, a lot of my history with Mark after Zero Hour sort of parallel. I did sort of the same thing. I hung on until Legion lost. Then I went away. I came back with Superboy. I mean, very similar, uh, Mark, our, our, our experiences there. Her from Brian Linton, he says, I came to the Legion from the other side of the tracks in the mid-aughts. I was reading Fantastic Four at the time, and I was a big fan of Mr. Fantastic. I went looking for an analogous superhero type, genius type, in the DC Universe and found two that caught my eye. One was Mr. Terrific in the JSA, and the other was Brainiac 5 in the Legion. Hmm. What an interesting way to get your, get your way, uh, find your way there. Huh. Thanks, Brian. And another round of egregious emissions uh, from uh, Jeff R. This almost beat me. I mean, the series, as you can tell from some of the G-list villains that are in the gallery, was nothing if not comprehensive. And whenever (laughs) I thought, yeah, I thought I'd come up with someone I thought, again, well, wait, they have a Legion of Supervillains affiliation, and so it will show up then. But finally, came up with the omission of the month for this, Composite Superman 2, not listed there or under Amalgamax or in number 7 as Shan. Uh, Characters with dubious at-the-time continuity status will probably feature heavily in omissions, to be honest. I mean, a book that's putting Captain Frakes in isn't going to be missing much. And yeah, the <laughs> Composite Superman, uh, a favorite of the Who's Who podcast, was, had been eliminated from the timeline, right? So couldn't be in, uh, even though he's a, technically a Legion character, could not be in Legion uh, Who's Who. And we were all thankful for that. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, if they could put Superboy from the reboot, why? Or, I'm sorry, from the pocket universe, why couldn't they have said Composite Superman was from there, too? Well, anyway. then they could also put a uh, Supergirl in there, and yeah, no. Mm, yeah, good point. Opens a can of worms. Uh, her from Bradley Null goes halfway through the pod da- uh, podcast, remembering uh, when I was reading the Great Darkness saga, I called Darkseid a tri- Trigon clone, my first time getting schooled by an older reader. Look at that, guys. Comic book readers were dicks even back in the early 80s. <laughs> Specifically to each other. <laughs> of course. Uh, Boston Moss says, uh, how did Jimmel miss that there were two children? As You know, talking about the, the, the kid that became Validus. Uh, they actually addressed that. And ultrasound was never done because the parents didn't want to spoil the surprise. And we readers never suspected a thing. I remember coming over this bit in a rereading that I completely missed. Uh, yeah, okay. I mean, I'm not a doctor, but still, even without, you know, a, a, a sonogram or whatever, you, you can probably tell somebody's having twins. 
I mean, at some point, there is some, you know, you can feel by touch, right? <laughs> well, I just want to say, you missed a great opportunity to say, I'm not a doctor, but I'm a bricklayer. That would have been <laughs> the best way to follow that up. But anyway. <laughs> All right, we're going to move on to Legion issues number three. Four, uh, Joe X uh, comes in to say the super assassins are loose knockoffs of the X-Men. Also, they break the Legion timeline as they were small children when the Dryad, when the Dryad died, but the same age as the Legionnaires in their first story. Hmm, that's an interesting point. Yeah, I completely forgot that, the, uh, that when we were recording, uh, but it was meant to be the exchange for the Imperial Guard being a Legion analog, right? Just like right. the, Supreme, the uh, Squadron Supreme and the Heroes of Angor were well, was it a, Was it a same month thing, though? Because the, the, the Squadron Supreme and Heroes of Angor were supposed to be in the same month. I wonder if uh, it was the other way around. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. Or just a tit-for-tat kind of if thing. O- if only I knew an expert on the Legion that could tell me. Huh. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Uh, as far as, uh, and he also says, as far as Wildfire as the membership committee head, he was probably complaining about some things, so Cosmic Boy said, fine, you do it. <laughs> I, I like that quite a bit, actually. That's uh, as good an explanation as any. And he goes on to say, I like that Keith Giffen and Carl Gafford gave each of the Ranses different colored lightning. I never picked up on that. That's pretty cool. I like that. And then he's, he says, Radiation Roy is obviously a descendant of Mikhail Arkadin. <laughs> Uh, well, I wish that were true. Mikhail Arkadin, folks, if you don't know, is a Firestorm character. Uh, I wish that were true, but I, I don't believe it is. Yeah, coming soon in the, the new podcast, it all comes back to Firestorm. Uh, <laughs> it's like one episode long. <laughs> uh, we've got Sphinx, Sphinx Magoo who says, uh, don't know if anyone else has heard this, but there was a theory that the Fatal Five were patterned after the initial Masters of Evils, and another Marvel analog thing. Uh, here's the breakdown. Emerald Empress is the Enchantress, certainly dressed the same color. The Persuader is the Executioner. Mm-hmm. Mano is the Melter, okay. Tharok as Baron Zemo, yeah. and Validus as maybe Radioactive Man. Uh, later, Jim Shooter, writer of the first Fatal Five story, denies any connection. Uh, still, it's a cool idea to think about. I, I kind of see some parallels. So, uh, her from. Heard from Ryan Daly again. I'm pretty sure he's in prison. He says, "When Shag showed me uh, the picture of Chlorophyll, Chlorophyll Kid from Who's Who, and asked me if you look familiar, I was floored. It does look like a character of me, and I'm cool with that. Chlorophyll Kid is in my top three favorite Legionnaires. I'm honored to resemble his likeness in some weird way. I wear it like a badge of honor, or at least a Facebook profile pic. Yeah, folks, if you if you hadn't seen that, go back look at uh, Chlorophyll Kid by Ty Templeton." Oh my gosh, it looks exactly like Ryan Daly. It blew me away when I saw that in the comic. Definitely, yeah. Heard from Chris Franklin again. He says, don't let Shag off the hook, Dr. Ange, because uh, I, I wasn't familiar with Wynn Mortimer when we did the podcast. So shame, shame, shame on me. I realized that. He goes, Wynn Mortimer had a long history in comics, um, at one time being a primary cover artist of Superman, Action, Batman, and Detective in the late 1940s through 1950s. He also drew many interior stories and worked on the Superman newspaper strip. He worked at Marvel in the 70s, drawing many issues of the Spidey Super Stories, and among other things. And of course, he drew the Supergirl stories in Superman family shame on you shag no that's fair that's fair um now in my own defense uh oh this is where the joe x thing comes in because joe x did come in here and sort of like bash me as well for not knowing that so he's off the christmas card list i'm just saying folks um but anyway he in my own defense so win mortimer 
um, stopped drawing in night for DC in 1982. That's before I even started reading comics. And the only contributions he did to this issue were like two very small characters. So I didn't bother doing the research. So I didn't know who he was. But since then, Rob and I have been doing digest cast and we read some issues drawn by Wynn Mortimer. So I feel like, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've paid my penance now. Yeah. You sort of blew up the internet there. Chris was really nice compared to some of these other people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but he also says Lightning Lad and Monel are his two favorite legionnaires. I can hear Siskoid rolling his eyes at my rather pedestrian choices. Uh, to which I'll, well, I'll answer. There's no favorite legionnaire that is ever a pedestrian choice. If you have, you know, a favorite legionnaire at all, you're already, you're in the niche department. Uh, you know, that's fair. There's no pedestrian. I can't. I can't walk out to a pedestrian and say who's your favorite legionnaire. Maybe I will be able to after this this run of Supergirl. Uh, but uh, you know, at that point, no, 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 no. Um, in fact, the girls on Ohatmu are all in on Monel as well. They were sort of fighting over who gets to marry him in the end. Oh, um, yeah, at least he, he didn't say Sunboy. That's, right. that's the one. That's the one they dislike. Yeah. Fair enough. I, I I would probably you know besides Phantom Girl obviously I I think it maybe a Rock Crin is pretty high up on my list you know not Cosmic Boy Rock Crin from five years later so mm. uh, Little Russell Burbage from Rimbor says because uh, we talked about on the covers that the interlac graffiti and sometimes in the issues asked if anybody bothered to translate it nobody had but he just he can read that crap straight away he says the interlac graffiti on that rejects entry painted on the walls reads the Legion stinks duh. <laughs> That's love pretty you, cool. Russell, so much. That's awesome. He's got a few more comments. Uh, he says, speaking of the president, that's I think that's a mistake I made, uh, or I misspoke at least. He said, I think I heard somebody say, that was me, that the Earth president is chosen by computer. Uh, this is not true. The candidates are chosen by computer, but the three main candidates are then voted on by the people. Uh, at least that's how President uh, Alon, which the, like the, uh, the Colossal Boy's mother, and Desai were elected. That's what I remembered, but I remembered it wrong. Uh, and then he says that it's, it's you, oh. you, you could almost hear his pocket protector being adjusted during that, uh, that, that comment. <laughs> uh, and then Mentala was designed by Steve Lytle using Saturn Girl's original uniform, the green and yellow, and his wife as his model. So that was like a little, a little love letter to her. Lucky uh, guy. Yeah, and Mantella dies a horrible death. So <laughs> you had to bring that part up. Um, <laughs> Eric writes in to say Stephen DeSafano drew uh, Porcupine Pete's hat as an homage to Porcupine from Walt Kelly's Pogo comic strip. How awesome is that? That makes sense now. Um, Boston Moss says regarding Color Kid uh, and the, the fact that he was replaced or he was like blinded by Je Jeff Johns. Uh, Jeff Johns treated him pretty dismissively by blinding him off panel, but it allowed him to do two things. First, it brings in Rainbow Girl as a sub and cements that color spectrum stuff into the 30th century. That's not necessarily a bad thing. The subs needed firepower with Night Girl moving on to the big leagues. Second, a lot of the plot required depowering soups by converting yellow sun energy to red. It sucks that he was removed in such a manner, but... Color Kid's whole shtick would have knocked that plan out in an instant. It would have been nice if it revolved around Sunboy and Color Kid, but it was already complicated enough. So, uh, so he hmm. uh, he sort of defends the the choice. All right. Well, Philemon comes in and actually redeems himself. He says, "I've always agreed with you, Shag, that Phantom Girl is the hottest Legionnaire." 
Huh, all right. But then he said, goes on to say, at least until I got to Saturn Girl's costume change to the skimpier pink outfit. Let's just say that sometimes the clothes make the girl. <laughs> uh, I can't argue that. Uh, more on this LGBTQ stuff. Uh, he says, the invisible kid was gay conspiracy. Calls it a conspiracy. Is complete retcon bull in Superboy 203, where Lyle dies. It is clear that his intentions towards the ghost Myla are romantic. He says, I'm visiting her realm to persuade her to come to our world as my wife. Now, I guess it's possible that the definition of marriage will change in a thousand years, but Lyle certainly seems to be romantically interested in the female apparition. I don't, I don't dispute that. It's also possible that Invisible Kid was bisexual. Why not? Um, or, you know, that he... It's the future. Why can't they be more fluid than, than most of us are? Um, and then he says, if we can count Legion Academy trainees and especially uh, defective time-displaced robot spy trainees, then Laurel Kent is the hottest Legionnaire's hands down. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that she's not hot because she's deeply hot Philemon. But, uh, you know, it's a little bit like saying if we count every superhero ever, then wonder girl is the hottest justice leaguer or something. I mean, a a cadet is not a legionnaire. Okay. That's fair. That's it's not, it's not fair to, 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 that we can go to her. Yeah. Cause that is, there is a reason argument to be made for her. So yeah, fair enough. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, the story in Adventure Comics 377, where the Legion become mercenaries in order to capture Modulus, is hands down the most needlessly convoluted plot to capture a minor villain I have read in my 42 years of life on this earth. <laughs> it is breathtaking in its complexity, and I, without being a professional comic book writer, can come up with half a dozen ways that the heroes could have saved the day without resorting to these tactics, although none of them, admittedly, would have filled out 23 pages. <laughs> That is one of my favorite things he's ever written. That was hysterical. So th- thank you for that, sir. Paul Hicks. He goes, I got halfway through the episode. Can I get my parking validated? <laughs> uh, fair enough, Paul. Fair enough. And then uh, Jeff R. says, the emission of the month was obvious this time. It's the Legion of Super Pets. Yeah. Ah, good call. Also erased from the timeline. Uh, I called it one of the cruelest cuts made by the crisis <laughs> in the later comments. <laughs> There's truth to any of that. There's truth to that. Uh, my buddy Kichi Baker says, did I hear Shag say that Timberwolf was a ripoff of Wolverine? He needs to have this flight ring taken away. You know, I think I knew that Timberwolf was before Wolverine and I just misspoke, but I, I do think there's a fair argument to be made where you could say Timberwolf was introduced, then Wolverine was introduced, but then Timberwolf started to reflect Wolverine as time went on and Wolverine became more popular. Is that fair to say? You sure. I mean... <laughs> I mean, right. they were both designed by the same artist, which is what makes the parallel. You know, we, we can look at that. You know, he created a character and then he recreated that character for another company. And that guy became super famous. It's like kind of, Shadow, it's like Shadow Man and Nightman. Um, if those same, characters same, were popular. Yeah. Same for either of those. Well, hey, one of them. Hey, one of them had a TV series for two seasons <laughs> that our president <laughs> even appeared on an episode, by the way. Stop it. Stop it. Yeah. Um uh, Jeff R. Uh, takes a shot at the Legion of Supervillains, the original one, the adult Legion stuff. Uh, he says, uh, this book is lying to you about the Legion of Supervillains, in particular <laughs> about their first appearance. The adult version ad- uh, deb- debuted almost a decade earlier than any appearance mentioned in the book uh, in Superman 147. They made a couple of appearances in Superman books, sometimes with a version of, with a version of an adult Legion in which the only change was changing the names to, like, the man, Saturn, woman, sometimes uh, just up against Superman on his own. So 
again, this is a this is a cut from the this is the crisis, you know. The uh, mm. adult legion cannot exist, and so the adult legion of supervillains stories never happened because they have to happen to a Silver Age Superman who never existed. Yeah, but I think that in the real world of the the first appearance notification, they were still honest about those, even if the first appearance was out of continuity. Were so they? I think it, I, well. We have to go back and check, but in normal who's who, that's how it works. Is even if a story's out of continuity, they still tell you the original first appearance of the character, whether it's an out of continuity appearance or not. Like in fact, once we get to the loose leaf, you'll start to see it'll say first appearance, and then in parentheses, they'll give another one. It'll say current continuity first appearance. Right. Hmm. All right. So well, if if there's a lie here, the lie would be uh, the the first if if first it screwed up the first appearance. Yeah, that's what I'm that's what I'm saying. So. Uh, again, heard from everybody, Martin Grace. His Lightning Lad's Cockrum costume is a total classic. It always struck me as the template for many of the Legion's post-Zero Hour costumes. You know, Martin, I never thought of it that way, but you are dead on right. Absolutely. Um, his costume, it does make a good template for how they were going to design the post-Crisis, uh, post-Zero Hour Legion. In fact, that also would apply to Impulse, I would say, as well. So I went and checked <laughs> while uh -oh. you were reading that, and yeah, it says, like, for Cosmic King... Uh, Legion of Superheroes, Volume 2, Number 2, or Volume okay. 3, whatever, Baxter Series, Number 2. So, yeah. Well, they went with the chronological first appearance here. So uh, yeah, You're so full of crap. You know, that, well, no, I'm not, I'm not saying that's right. I'm saying that's what they obviously did. They went with Cosmic King first appeared as a younger man in the Baxter Series because in those other stories is like a much older man because it's against right. the adult Legion. Anyway, it's... It's a mistake. You're, you're trying to no-prize it because if you look at, like, Brainiac 5, they say his real first appearance, not when they go back and tell how he joined the Legion. No, I agree. I, I, I'm, okay. not, I'm not retconning. You know, I'm not, I'm not no-prizing it. I'm saying that seems to be the logic they've applied in this particular case, but it is a mistake. He was right that the, the, they lied about those first appearances. All right. Now we're That's throwing it. our pocket projectors around. So, all right. Yep. <laughs> uh, we're still on Martin Gray, are we? Yes. Uh, he says, as, as has been pointed out, the idea that Invisible Kid is gay didn't really fit the evidence. I actually find all that stuff about him being gay because he's shy and has a feminine power rather offensive. So there you go. Uh, um, the, 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 the decision to, to make some of these characters gay for, you know, sometimes the reasons are dubious and may seem offensive to some. Uh, our buddy Diablo French chimes in. He goes, Tear is my hair hero. One day I want to be a man enough to rock that look. And after seeing, uh, I've seen Diablo Frank with longish hair. I think he could do it. I think he would look pretty sweet in that tear look. And then later on he goes, wait, no, wait. Hunter is my hair hero. I'm going to roll up to Shag in crimson ponytails. <laughs> I totally want to see both those looks, sir. Uh, then we have Zoom Yukonori. Um, uh, let's see if I can... I've been working on a Zoom impression. I, oh, really? <clears throat> yeah, but I've, been, I've started to lose my voice at this point in the podcast. I don't know. To my knowledge, the first writing of the Legion <laughs> Constitution... That's pretty good. That's, that's it was kind of, really good. Yeah. To my knowledge, the first writing of the Legion Constitution was by Neil Posner for his Legion Handbook issue of The Amazing World of DC Comics, issue 9, though it was not as organized or official-looking as the Constitution in Who's Who... Mr. Posner's article essentially pulled quotes from the Constitution that was documented in the DC Comics up to that time, which was 1975, with some commentary and references to relevant Legion stories. 
<laughs> I, that was that was very impressive. I mean, the guy has got some pipes on him. He could read the phone book, and I think it would still get my pants off. I mean, it's just he's 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 got a sexy voice, that man. Siskoid, if I wore panties, they'd be off. <laughs> Uh, anyway, right. thanks for that, Zoom. We're moving on to Legion issues five and six. You're up, buddy. Okay, uh, David is Gutierrez, my good friend. He says, hey, was this a newsstand series? I found the original Who's Who series everywhere. Grocery stores, convenience stores, gas stations, but didn't know about this series, Legion uh, Who's Who, until you started covering it. And I checked, and it was. I mean, I personally, I bought them off the rack. Not okay. No comic book stores in my town. I don't remember ever seeing it on the shelves. Uh, I, I picked up Who's Who off the shelves, but I don't remember ever seeing this one. So, uh, heard from Robert Markham, who goes. Uh, I was talking about the cover of that issue was uh, as far as the cityscape of Metropolis and how there was no Daily Planet. I was really impressed that they didn't bother to hang on to this 20th century artifact just for the for the reader. But he points out that da- Daily Planet is on the cover of issue six and is just obstructed by Saturn Girl. See, I was probably distracted. Uh, and he goes, you can also see Space Leaf Sprockets, uh, Valentino Perez 88, and the Wayne Foundation. Hmm. All right. Very cool. Still doing good work a thousand years from now. Um, <laughs> Ange says, a quick comment about the Reflecto entry. Remember. Oh, <laughs> in this the pre- old thing. Well, I mean, he makes a good point. In the pre-internet days, these books were used as references. Imagine you are a fan who saw Reflecto on covers, heard the name, wanted to know who the hell this guy was. So you heard, you, you head to the R issue and dun, 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 no Reflecto. Instead, there are two lines inside the Ultra Boy or Superboy entries mentioning this, uh, although Reflecto may not have warranted even two lines you know, in those entries. So it makes sense. So given the prominence of Reflecto, folks must have thought the story more than the character warranted a page or a block. Uh, yeah, of course. And if I'd been present at that recording, which I was not, I would have mentioned an actual Reflecto did make an appearance later. He was retconned into Ultra Boy's origin with Superboy now gone. So you need a a second character in the 5YL annual number one. Uh, He was name-checked as one of the Gap Legionnaires, uh, which, you know, the the ones that only I care about, apparently. And later in 5YL, he's part of Mordru's undead army of dead Legionnaires. So there was an actual Reflecto retconned into continuity. Okay. I can shake it off and try and wake up and keep going here. Um, I'm sorry, that whole reflector thing just gets under my skin. Anyway, Robert Markham comes back to say the original Starfinger was introduced in his first appearance as, quote, the 30th century villain more dangerous than Goldfinger. So I was right. I kept feeling like Goldfinger had to inspire the Starfinger name, which, of course, is going to result in me going, Starfinger. What, what, what? You know, you knew that was coming, folks. All right. And a final round of Siskoid versus Philemon. Uh, you, <laughs> he says you really miss the most misogynistic aspect of Queen Azura. The resolution of the adventure occurs when Ultra Boy and Monel save the Feminazis. Uh, I'm sure that's what the denizens of Femnaz are called. Realizing that they are just fragile women folk who can't protect themselves, the Feminazis reverse course and embrace the traditional role as the weaker sex. I just I just covered this story for the Legion of Superbloggers at time of recording. The article showed up last you know yesterday. Uh, and that's not that's not that's not the ending. 
the ending is that uh, you know they've expelled all, all their men from their planet because the men are too intellectual and pacifists and they don't want to respect their their moon goddess religion. Uh, and then um, you know Monel and Ultra Boy save the day, and the the fem Nazis go, oh, all men aren't bad. All men aren't actionless, spineless grubs. Uh, sorry about that. And she apologizes to the Legion. And that's it. There, there's no let's go back to, you know, somehow let's take traditional female roles. There's still female warriors at the end of the story. So right. I badly remembered bit here. Yeah. But I, I will still fight anyone to the death that says that Femnaz wasn't a mean crack and uh, completely out of line. So. The, the whole story is, is sexist. I yeah. mean, I, you know, I just defended the end of it, but the whole thing is sexist with the female legionnaires uh, all using their feminine wiles to, to screw over the male legionnaires. Um, sorry about that expression. But, yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, no. It's got major problems. Jerry Siegel had, you know, issues. But, um, <laughs> but that's still mischaracterizing the end of that story. Fair enough. Uh, Philemon goes on to say, it is hard to argue that uh, at this point that the Legion needs Superboy. Uh, interesting. And he goes on, but then he, that being said, I think the Legion works best with Superboy in its history. I don't need Clark on the team necessarily, but I like the idea of him, him inspiring the team, and the occasional trip to 20th Century Smallville is always fun. Eh, well, you know what? That's fair enough. Uh, there was another comment, it's lost in here somewhere, I apologize, where someone said um, the Legion doesn't need Superboy. However, if you look at the Legion sales history, the only time it really sold well is when Superboy was on, or consistently, uh, and didn't get canceled like it is nowadays, is when Superboy was part of their history. So, interesting observation, one way or another. I uh, heard from my buddy Clinton Robinson, uh, who, <laughs> who wrote a letter. This is great. Uh, he says, when they make the Ken Burns version documentary detailing the epic that was Who's Who in the Legion of uh, Superheroes podcast, he, I will be sure to submit the following letter for consideration. <clears throat> it reads, Dearest family, I am nearing the end. I have journeyed for nearly three weeks, and I am finally, I am within the last few minutes of the Legion of the Who's Who. Uh, I'm sorry, Who's Who in the Legion number five and six. For all my efforts, I have only more knowledge of the great. I have only more knowledge of the Great Darkness Saga and the curse to show for it. Morale is low. Since Pharaoh lads, multiple sacrifices in various points in history across various realities all have seemed lost. Surely we cannot continue much further. Loose leaf additions are needed. Hold on. I am now being informed that yet another two-hour journey through the final volume. Truly, this is madness. Not even the heroes of Lalor could withstand such an onslaught. The rest of the expedition is currently cursing Shag's name. The reasons are many, yet painfully obvious. He refuses to admit that Lightlass is the hottest legionnaire, but I digress. Family, I shall return to you, but know not when. I am now extending my journey in order to find out the secrets of Tekron Galtos and Tyr and other aspects of Legion history. Remember me, but do not wait for me. <laughs> that is hysterical. I love it. Thank you, Clinton. Yeah, I've seen uh, him online since, so he survived the journey. I've, I've hung out with him since then, so okay. it's fair enough. There you go. I went out to Oklahoma, and we uh, had a great time together. Uh, Martin Gray wrote in to say, uh, No way is late last the hottest legionnaire. The woman is so plain she could pass for her dead brother. That is the <laughs> best evidence I have heard yet uh, to support my uh, assertion that Lightlass is not the hottest legionnaire. You are dead right. She could pass for her dead brother. Thank you so much for that, Martin Gray. You are my uh, you're my sexist hero now. <laughs> not really sexist, I'm kidding. But, you know, he's uh, the hottest legionnaire hero. There we go. Heard from Boston Moss. He says, uh, I remember when Censor Girl's identity was revealed, my local comic shop held a contest for Legion subscribers. Subscribers got to guess who she was before the reveal. They could put in only one guess, and there would be a drawing of the right guessers, and they would get the issue for free. I didn't win, but I was one of the two people who figured it out. 
that is a pretty cool idea. I mean, the fact that this mystery was such a big deal that they could hold that contest at their comic shop, that's really cool. Yeah. And that uh, leads us to Legion number seven comments. Okay, so this is where we're on the downhill slope, folks. Uh, issue number seven. Siskoid, you're up. Yeah, Sphinx Magoo uh, talks about Tyrock. He says his name was Troy Stewart. I wonder if they were setting up that Tyrock was related to Green Lantern. John Stewart. All the surnames that could have chosen and the writers picked Stewart. Seems like a possible story there. Yeah, I mean, again, something they never explored if they meant to. Um, and a lot of people don't like it when you just, oh, they have the same last name, so let's make them all part of the same legacy. I mean, uh, it's always a bit of a stretch. But you could have retconned something like a post-crisis uh, marrying the mosaic world with Marzal, whatever, the, that, that, that Brigadoon thing. Uh, where Tyrock comes from, you could have done something with that. But, oh, uh, just just stop. That's how you get Johnny Thunder the Cowboy connected to Bouncing Boy. Don't don't exactly. Do this. See, that's that's why you don't do it. Um, he says I ha- he has a Time Trapper theory. I think the identity of Time Trapper is based on what Earth or timeline we're talking about. For example, the pre-Crisis Earth One Time Trapper was what has one identity, which is different from the post-Crisis Earth Prime Time Trapper. Then it gets complicated after Zero Hour. Then it gets more complicated in the New 52, uh, where it's hinted that the Legion came from Earth 2, whatever. So he suggests the possibility that some of the Legions uh, that Superman Superboy had met were from different parallel Earths, and so different Time Trappers. And every time they sh- show who the Time Trapper really is, we're another... It's another continuity, which is basically what I was going for when we talked about the character. Right. I mean, any any of those theories are interesting, one way or another. Just it's fun to kind of speculate how they, how why he changes all the time. <clears throat> yeah. Heard from Diablo Frank. He says nothing against the guys contributing to this project, and in no way a reflection on the quality of the presentation. But after a year without the real Who's Who podcast and some very long shows testing my limited affection for two sci-fi franchises for hours at a time, <laughs> to, to quote a tearful Adam Warlock. I welcome its end. You know, Frank, um, I, I'm I'm kind of there with you too. I love all the I love all this stuff, but it's time to get to some good loose leaf stuff. Uh, heard from Anthony Kahn, and he goes on, longtime DC continuity nut and who's who fan, love the show. One thing that kind of always fascinates me are comic book projects that get announced and never happen. So when at the end of your who's who in the Legion cover, you mentioned uh, the never realized who's who in Superman, I immediately had memories of reading the announcement in one of the DC promo editorials and being intrigued and then saddened, saddened that the project never came to fruition. But somewhere over the last 20 years or so, I heard someone mention, for the life of me, I can't remember where, that the Superman-centric Who's Who project actually evolved into something else. The three world of miniseries we got in the late 1980s, you know, World of Krypton, World of Smallville, World of Metropolis. Anyone have a clue if that's true? I, I don't know the answer to that, but I wouldn't be surprised if that is, in fact, what happened there. And then he says, and in closing, I must admit that it's tough being a fan of the Archie superhero properties, so I'm probably one of the few people on Earth who actually eagerly await your coverage of the who's who in the Impact universe. But it's a cross that I guess I'll have to hear on, on bear on my own. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to the Impact coverage as well. I don't know what form it's going to take, but it, it is who's who, so we will cover it at some point. Yeah, and it's got cool characters. Absolutely. And Mike Parabek art and Tom yeah. Lyle art. I mean, just good stuff. Uh, let's see. Is this our last one? This is it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Jeff chimes in to say, done. I just finished the entirety of the Who's Who podcast, all 45 episodes in a little over a month. 
Oh my god. I think that I think that legally makes him insane, doesn't it? Um <laughs> sort of like when they tell you you take too many hits of acid, you're legally insane. I think that's what's happened. Anyway, he says, I'm a huge Legion fan, especially the reboot. Uh Legionnaires was my very first comic book poll comic, uh, but I devoured everything Legion I can get my hands on. I didn't get Who's Who in the Legion until I was in college, so I never had time to pour over it like I did the original Who's Who, which came out when I was in the single digits. Going over by entry by entry was a great way to revisit the series. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Jeff. So glad you enjoyed it. All right. Well, um, I think we're going to take a quick break, uh, play a couple more podcast promos, and then, folks, when we come back, we're going to do that much-promised appendix. Welcome to the world of tomorrow! (laughs) The Legion of Superheroes through the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, the Baxter series, five years later, the reboot, the three-boot, the retro-boot, the animated series. We have banded together as the Legion of Super Bloggers to cover it all. Seek us out at legionofsuperbloggers.blogspot.com. always have to say it that way haven't you ever heard of a little thing called showmanship you know what i should have said as we went to break and i completely forgot i'll just say it one more one time because it's appropriate long live the legion that's how we should have ended that break folks all right (laughs) now we are back for the much promised appendix this is something very very interesting um our buddy Diablo Frank. I know a lot of you are already like, whoa, whoa, what just happened here? Uh, Diablo Frank from the Idle Head of Diablo podcast and blog. He uh, put together the most amazing, um, most ambitious fan-created Who's Who project I've ever seen. He did this a couple years ago uh, in preparation for Martian Manhunter's uh, 60th anniversary. We completely blew it by not ant- uh, by not talking about it during the 60th anniversary, but this is the first chance we've really had to cover it in any sort of uh, length. And we are actually going to cover, uh, for very briefly, a special uh, fan-created who's who in, Mar- in Martian Manhunter. It's, uh, it's wild. I, you, got, you guys have looked at this yet, right? Yeah? Yeah, this is, this is a startling piece of f- fan achievement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he gets uh, real, you know, he, he went around finding artists to do every entry on these very, you know, often obscure Martian Manhunter characters. I mean, there's no, there's no fire fist in here or whatever that guy's called, the, the one with the, the, you know, the fiery nipples or whatever. Right, right. That, that's not obscure enough for Diablo Frank. He's got to go human squirrel on you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like characters I've never even heard of or don't remember from even, re- you know, a reading of the, the, the showcase presents. So, um, and then getting artists to do that stuff, to do those characters, uh, must have been uh, an interesting bunch of conversations at conventions <laughs> and whatnot. Well, he, as, you, as you said, he paid for this stuff out of his own pocket. He would get, whether it be a local artist or even sometimes big-name comic book artist, to do the art. Uh, he showed me I, – I went to his house one time, and he showed me this portfolio of all this original artwork, and he had some great stories about some of the artists and how he would give them, like, a reference material. And then they'd tell him – he'd say, just draw whatever you want. You just go nuts. And some of them are – like, one of them, the guy's riding a tricycle and stuff. I mean, it's really fun, crazy stuff. It's, it's fantastic. Now um, – Part of the reason you want to do this too was, you know, when, when Martian Manhunter was covered in the original Who's Who, 
pretty much Martian Manhunter is the only character from his mythos that was covered. You know, Martian Manhunter had 30 years of history at that point, and he was the only character that made it in there. So um, it was something that, you know, it, it was important to him, and it's really an awesome piece. So we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna post either a, a link to it or some of the pages on our website. Rob, what's the, where would they find these gallery posts? Fireandpodcast.com. That's right. Go to the Shows button, go to Who's Who, and you'll find the gallery post for this one. You can definitely check out some of that there, and it's well worth it. So we're going to dive right in here. Um, on the cover is basically Martian Manhunter's family. It's a family portrait. You've got John Jones, of course, the Martian Manhunter, his two brothers, his grandmother, his mother, his father, his wife, his daughter, and the Martian god Hieronymer. I'm not, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but that's how I say it. It's very cool. And it's a, it's a open, um, what do you call that, two-page spread on the cover. Mm-hmm. He lists uh, Rob Liefeld as one of the cover artists. I don't know which character Rob is um, <laughs> is responsible for. There's no one with an outrageous cape there. Well, I was guessing the daughter, simply because you don't see the feet all that much. <laughs> Maybe. And, and the daughter's not covered inside the book, so uh, that, that that's where my money was. So, but yeah, thank you. I forgot to mention. Yeah, the. Uh, the creative team on this are Carl Barberi, Ryan Benjamin, Brett, Brett Booth, which is a big name, Scott Collins, another big name, Ken Lashy, another big name, Rob Liefeld, big name, supposedly, uh, Marafa Michaels, Adrian Nelson, Norm Rappun, another big name, and Dietrich Smith. Wow, very impressive. And it's With colors of- by, uh, yeah, colors by, is that a legal machine? I assume, that it says Mac, so I'm assuming that means yeah. a legal machine. Pretty cool. And on the inside cover, you get in, you get an amazing recreation of the Who's Who House and Wives. You know, on the on the front inside cover of all the original Who's Who series, there was that page with the had the DC bullet and had all the information and the credits and all that. It's all there, and Frank gives his rationale for why he did this. So it's really cool. Well, we're checking out. So we're going to dive into the characters here, folks. So we're we're going to go a little bit quickly, uh, but you you can keep up. And again, you can look through these entries. First one is Ben Burns. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I got to zoom in here a little bit, guys. Forgive great, me. I'm having... Great documentary filmmaker. <laughs> ben Burns, who first appeared in 1962. Uh, he's a Martian criminal hiding on Earth in the future. And he escaped into the past back to 1962, but was ultimately stopped by Martian Manhunter. Art by Jerry Rasco. And basically, he looks. The drawing is. I, I like the drawing quite a bit. It's quite striking. It looks basically like Martian Manhunter with like an evil face, almost like the Mr. Clean evil version of his face. Yeah, I like that it's colored by marker. I like that color effect, that marker effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. Looks nice. All right, up next is Brett. And by the way, a lot of these have unnecessary apostrophes uh, <laughs> because John Jones kind of thing. So uh, Brett is a Martian criminal in Middletown, USA. He's known for his Martian ray gun and ultimately was responsible for Martian Manhunter revealing his existence to the public at large and revealing his weakness. Now, the art here, you've got two different artists. You've got uh, Nick Pitara, who uh, did the Surprint. So we got some Surprint, which was nice. And I don't – and the other – we got a big name. Mark Texiera did the Forefront. And the – the big thing that makes uh, Brett different from the other Martians is his skin is actually yellow. He's still got a similar costume to Marsh Manor, but with the yellow skin, it's a very striking difference, and uh, the Texier art looks nice. I like both pieces. I think they're both mm-hmm. really effective and very c- completely different from one another. The Texier piece is, of course, gritty and realistic, and then the Nick Patara is very cartoony, almost looks like G.F. Darrow kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. They both are really quite striking. Yeah. 
All right. Up next is Belle Jews, the sexy, sexy, sexy Belle Jews. Uh, she is John's crazy ex-girlfriend from Mars. She's She was a traitor. She fought Superman. She eventually turned, uh, teamed up with the Marshal to help with the Mars Earth War, which tore the Justice League apart, and it's all Robin Aquaman's fault. Um <laughs> The art here, you've got three different art pieces because everyone just loves her. You got uh, Brian Denham, Robert Wilson, uh, Paul Galassi, and Walden Wong. The forefront picture is Belle Juice. She's got kind of a bluish, greenish skin in here. She's got, you know, kind of a demure pose. Very sexy. It looks like almost like a J. Scott Gamble face to me, but um, hot, hot, hot. And the back two are more in a traditional kind of cartoon style. I think my favorite, though, is the one, uh, the two serpent ones, the one on the left. Me too. Uh, it, it's just got a great. I don't want to say um, – who's the guy that did Mad Men? I can't come up with his name real quick off the top of my head. Mike Allred. Um, Mike Allred, yeah. It's a, a little bit of Mike Allred maybe? I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm seeing something that's not there. but uh, Or maybe even a little, a little Tom Zoller actually. Um, but I love it. Yeah, I think it's really sharp. It's – it's when I said that, that when you see that it's the first appearance in World's Finest Comics, I, like you kind of forget that like Martian Manor had a whole storyline in that book because like, he never had his own title. So, like, these major events in this character's history appeared in this sort of, like, other title that was never his. But they found room for him in the Superman Batman book. So, I mean, have, have those been reprinted somewhere? Are they in that volume that you talked about, Siskoid? No, that volume goes up to, like, 1960. Okay. Or, right. Yeah, if that. <laughs> so, um Well, the, yeah. the, Brett, the Brett appearance might be there because that was Detective Comics 1959. I forgot to mention that. Oh yeah, these are the seventies. Huh? Okay, yeah, yeah, those are those are. They had some really great Neil Adams covers. There's some that's some neat stuff. I've read a couple of those. Yep. And you'd think a character like this would have made a comeback somehow. Well, I mean, she 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 did show up in the you know again the Mars Earth War, um, but yeah. then after that they changed his history so dramatically that um, yeah, I mean you know you're right. It seems like they would find a way to to work her into post crisis continuity, being an ex girlfriend and everything. And I mean. I thought she was great in the Mars Earth War. I mean, she's just kind of person you didn't root for. She was a bad person, but she was a great character. And again, um, super hot. So, all right. Up next is uh, Betty Noir. She, this is a bit of an odd one. She is, uh, she comes from Project Cadmus, and she's a psychic vampire creature from Earth. And she didn't look like she does here in the drawing, but she eventually takes on a proxy body for herself, which is a seductive, pale-skinned woman in sort of sexy gear, which is what we see here. She's, um, she's got long black hair. She looks a little vampiric. She's uh, basically kind of wearing lingerie with long uh, black uh, thigh-high boots. Art by Vaux I can't say Nugan. I'm not sure. Uh, her first appearance was jump forward pretty far. Marsh Manhunter number one million uh, in November. I know, crazy. Can Published I say how much I hate those? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like the whole crossover except for Our Man. So, uh, Marsh Manhunter one million from November 1998. I, I do, they, there are not one million issues of Martian Manhunter, so that no. number is meaningless. Numbers well, you, need, numbers need to mean something. And there is no millionth issue of Martian Manor. That I just, oh God, I hate those. Well, you know what the premise of that was, right? I know the premise. I understand, but like that, you number things to be able to catalog them. And if you just, why not just call any? Why not call it forty billion? Like, why not just call it any number you want? I just. Well, okay, so there is a reason. It's because when they did this crossover, they said, all right, what year would it be when Action Comics reaches issue 1 million? Well, it would be the 853rd century or whatever it was. And so they showed us what the Justice League would look like in the year or the 853rd century when Action Comics number 1 million would get published. And so then all the books did a 1 million issue, and they did a big crossover called DC 1 million. So that was the whole thing for it. 
Okay. All I just did was support your argument, truthfully. So, (laughs) but Graham Morrison was behind it, and they let him do anything. That's true. I'll just mention a couple of uh, just pronunciation things because Vo Nguyen will show up again. So that's how you pronounce that that uh, Vietnamese name. And um, and you called her Betty Noir, but I'm pretty sure it's Bet Noir because that becomes a pun, right? It's uh, Black Beast in French. So yeah, you're correct. Absolutely correct. All right, moving on. Um, Cayenne, like the pepper, I guess. Um, <laughs> a survivor of the Mars plague, and she blamed Martian Manhunter since he was the protector of Mars and his brother unleashed the plague. Now, Martian Manhunter failed in his duties as far as she sees it, and Cayenne was stalking Martian Manhunter ever since, even using the white Martians in her revenge scheme. Uh, she's also from the more later, latter day, from Martian Manhunter number three, December 2006. And art here is by a name I don't see anywhere. <laughs> It's on top of just over oh. the character's head. Gotcha. Oh, say the name for me, Cisco. It's Vote Nguyen again. Thank you. I can't say it. So, uh, She is dressed in almost nothing. Uh, she's basically uh. wearing two red strips of dental floss uh, to cover her nipples and crotchular region, and that's about, and an amulet, and that's about it. And then th- she uh, she stole Bib Fortuna's uh, headpiece. Uh, I was about to say, I, was, I, oh. I think Bib Fortuna would find this very sexy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, up next is Chase, as in Cameron Chase, as in the Chase ongoing series. Um, so the connection here to Marsh Manhart specifically is her father was known as the Acrobat, who was a member of the Justice Experience, uh, I think it was the 1950s, if I remember right, with Marsh Manhart, who was on that team, who back then called himself the Bronze Wraith. And art here is by, forgive me, I'm scrolling up. Oh, say it one more time, Cisco. Vo Nguyen. See, I can't pronounce anything, guys. That's why we have Cisco on the show. <laughs> and that's one of the better pieces uh, that uh, that artist has done here. Uh, I, I really I like it. Um, I, I like the like the watercolor treatment to it too. Yep. Yeah, and it's, like I, a, I, it's like a scene instead of just a pose. Mm-hmm. That was my bad. I should have mentioned it. Yes, yeah, she's there drawing her revolver, and she's facing a red demon, which makes me wonder. That's not. Is that supposed to be uh, Marsh Manhunter as the Bronze Wraith? I don't really know. Thanks for backing me up, guys. All right. Yeah, I don't uh, remember either. <laughs> up next is Commander Blanks. Finally, you, character I've heard of. Well, you've heard of this guy because it's Frank's online Twitter handle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he it. was he, and his first appearance was Justice. Oh, that's why you know him, Justice League of America, number seventy-one in mm-hmm. May nineteen sixty-nine. Now he was the leader of the White Martians, who apparently all dwelled at the poles in a worldwide civil war against the Green Martians, who were desert dwellers. And keep in mind, the White Martians were very different back in 1969 compared to the way they are now. He was the chief rival of Jean Jones during the war and battled Martian Manhunter a few times. We've got a few different art pieces here. Uh, We've got art by Marat Michaels and uh, also a piece by George Perez. Now, I love the piece on the first page. I guess it's the Marat Michaels one, the one that's colored in orange and green. I just love that look. I think he looks fantastic. The one in the back of the Serpents, uh, not as strong. I don't know if this is the same artist or not. And the George Perez one, to me, really looks looks very Gil Kane. Yeah, I think maybe because it's so blown up. We're used to to seeing these these, this, this little intricate art on the you know on a page because uh, it it doesn't quite look that that, that you know uh, sketchy on mm-hmm. uh, because this is also what Frank uses as a an avatar usually yes that hits, Abs- yeah. 
Absolutely correct. Up next, we get a half-page entry. Really does make me reminiscent for classic Who's Who, doesn't it, Rob? Um, of the Conjurer, who's a human thief. He uses stage magic in his robberies. I love this guy. Uh, Martian Manhunter investigated the robberies in his police guys, but his investigation was hampered by a filmmaker documenting the investigation. Therefore, Martian Manhunter couldn't use his powers without revealing his secret identity I love that shtick. That is hilarious. First appearance was Detective Comics 263 back in January 1959, art by Shane Davis. And he's just sort of a dapper-looking sort of magician with, you know, a cool magician mustache and black hair and, you know, fancy outfit. He's most definitely in that Showcase Presents that I mentioned earlier. Oh, okay. Anything that's 50s is in that book, I'm pretty pretty sure. Awesome. Uh, Up next is the Devilmen of Pluto. What a great name. These are alien bandits from the lawless region of Pluto. They came to Earth to collect their plunder and the parts to a robot who would help them uncover the treasure. They were defeated by Martian Manhunter and their own backfiring robot. And the picture is this great shot of these guys. They're sort of in the foreground. One's firing his gun up in the air. They've got this awesome red background. Um, One of them kind of looks a little bit like Hitler, actually. I was thinking uh, that myself. (laughs) <laughs> and there's just a great, great close-up of one of the guys' faces by Paul Mayberry. I, I really like this piece. It sounds like a Same. great movie, Devilman of Pluto. I don't think that right? is a movie, but it was, I'd say it's certainly something that would have made, been made in the mid-50s. <laughs> All right, up next is Frank's namesake, folks. This, folks, this is Diabolo, and it also includes the idol head of Diabolo in the entry. So uh, this is an ancient, insane wizard. He built the idol head, which resembles like a small statue kind of thing. Uh, he, bu- he built the idol head, which is filled with the many terrible magical evils, uh, sort of like a Pandora's box. And periodically, it would release terrors on Earth, and Martian Manhunter would protect the Earth for us. And this was an ongoing theme in the Martian Manhunter book for many, many years. His first appearance was in House of Mystery 159, April 1966. Now, the drawing is of a very old, old, old wizened guy. I mean, he is just about on his last legs. He's got, he's holding a key and he's got a cane, and in front of him is the idol head of Diablo. And the art is by um, Cody Shibby. And I just think, I love it. I love the line work on this thing. I think it looks beautiful. It's a very different style than the rest of them. And this from this feels like something you would have seen in a D&D source book. Mm. I would agree oh, yeah. with that. Yeah, especially the early, the early books. It's very much in that style. Yeah. Uh, you know, people will just doodle during games and and come up with these kind of you know staging for characters. Uh, and it, this is again one of the like Commander Blanks, one of the characters that we've heard about because it's the name of the podcast and <laughs> and blog that uh, Frank has. Exactly. Diablo. Yeah, <laughs> it's a pretty good impersonation. <laughs> All right, up next is Dr. Trap. He's a deformed human outcast, and a traumatic accident unhinged him, and he began killing superheroes, specifically Martian Manhunter's teammates on the Justice Experience, leaving Martian Manhunter a temporary amnesiac. Eventually, he was stopped by the JSA and Martian Manhunter again in his guise as the Bronze Wraith. Now, their first appearance is, is all big retcons here in Chase Number 3 from 1998. The art here is really interesting by Andy uh, Kuhn, I would say. Very strong uses of blacks. Uh, it's a bald, kind of like skinhead-looking guy, but he's got this huge metal jaws, almost like a cartoon character kind of mouth with very 90s kind of sunglasses and black outfit and creepy claws, but then outlined in red. I, I love this piece. I think it's really cool and creepy. Yeah, it's a neat, yeah. cool little sketch. Very kind of Mignoli. Not, I don't mean to you know, denigrate just by comparing it to something else, but it's got that style. And I like the little uh, the red lines shooting off of his mouth, mm-hmm. that kind of movement. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very nice piece. Yeah, and it fits the the art that was in Chase at the time, 
by the oh, time okay. at all times. I, I like I remember this guy. I remember this guy uh, from the series just visually. I don't remember enough about the series to to really comment, but um, I remember liking it. <laughs> And, and, and again, I'll compare him to someone too. Not again, not as a knock, it's actually a compliment. It reminds me a little bit of some of the, some of Richard Case's work in Doom Patrol. So yeah, it's, it's nice. Uh, up next is the Headmaster. Uh, this is a brilliant human scientist obsessed with the survival of our species. He replaced his human body with a new robotic shell and wanted to build a massive spaceship to carry humanity's finest, uh, as it was determined by him, off the planet to elsewhere. And his first appearance was in Martian Manhunter One Million, Rob's favorite comic book. <sighs> uh, Art by Lane Montoya, and you know, uh, it's a, it's um honestly, it looks like one of the guys from Bloodlines. Um, oh you know, yeah, with, with all the armor and the <laughs> the chitinous sort of stuff, uh, and all in reds. Now, stepping away from the art for just a second, you know, I, one thing we didn't mention was Frank really went to a lot of effort to really recreate the original Who's Who look here. I mean, it's got the yellow dots around the edges, the personal data, history, powers, weapons, all of it's exactly like it should be. He's got it all laid out. He's got the typeface right. He wrote very lengthy histories for each character. So I, I realized I didn't actually say that up front, so I wanted to at least give uh, Frank props for that, because this is this is just a work of genius. Mad genius, but genius. <laughs> Alright, up next is, I think, possibly everybody's new favorite character. Uh, it is the human squirrel. Uh, it is a human bandit in a squirrel costume. It is exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> and he reformed and ended up joining something called the Ex-Convicts Club. I still love Art that. That's such a great, great name I for know. her. Art is, I know, I know, you're so right. Art by Chris Beaver and then uh, Kariska. And so the front image is uh, the human squirrel with like a bag, a, a carry, like, you know, a, a, you would steal with uh, and carry stuff in, uh, a carpet bag or whatever. And then he's, it's clearly a guy in just a gray and white costume with a headpiece on. And the other one in the background is a little more, looks a little more rodent-like. But I love the front drawing. The coloring on it is just beautiful. Everything about it, it's just, it looks cute. I, it just seems strange that someone named Chris Beaver drew the human squirrel. I was going to say. <laughs> I may have been Frank's motivation. By the way, yeah. his first appearance was June 1961 in Detective Comics. Oh, I love this character. He should be around today. I love him. Him and Squirrel Girl could team up. Mar- DC oh Marvel team gosh. up. Gosh. It's the crossover we've all been waiting for and didn't know. <laughs> all right. Up next, we have a very important character to the, to the Marsh Manhunter's continuity. Uh, Hunter Commander Jen. She is Marsh Manhunter's former girlfriend, uh, and she started working for the uh, warmonger, the Marshal, who again led the, uh, led them to the Mars Earth War. Jen was forced to hunt down Marsh Manhunter, and she saw the error of her ways and then helped Marsh Manhunter during the Mars Earth War. She returned with her people to Mars 2, leaving Marsh Manhunter behind. Personally, I prefer Jen to Bell Jews. That's just my take on it uh great character though so here you see her in her purple and yellow armor she's got the green skin with a flaming orange hair and the art is by chris i'm getting Be- there chris beaver oh chris beaver and and then there's a second drawing by bob layton which looks like it's straight out of a justice league comic actually it looks great yeah i like this character i mean i that whole mars earth invasion story that we covered with frank over on fire and water is That's terrific right. and she gets a lot of good Good moments. So, yeah, this mm-hmm. is a cool character. It's kind of her fault to Justly like, broke up, though, you know. Uh, it's Aquaman's fault. Yeah, it's true. It's absolutely I, true. I, I, you know, I, I can't deny that. <laughs> 
Up next, oh, and by the way, Jen, Jen had a two-page spread. Uh, up next is another two-page spread for Kishna, uh, Kishana Lewis. She's the human granddaughter of a shaman, and she descended from the famed 19th century Central, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 19th century African-American industrialist. She can generate heat and flames and is considered an avatar of fire as well as other powers. And there's a, there's a tragic love story here between her and Marsha Manhunter due to her fire powers. Now, she continues to operate as a hero with her newfound powers. And uh, I do love when Frank did the two-page spread here. He he included the image of the staples uh, for the little detail showing it's the middle of the book. I thought that was super clever. I love it. Um, and she is a very recent addition to the mythos. She came in uh, JLA Scary Monsters from May 2003. I have no I have no idea who this is. I love the artwork. I, I mean, the, the, the bio piece. It's really nice. But, yeah, I've, I'm like half of these characters. I'm like, who? The, like, I, how can this character have this much in history? I've never heard of them. But, you know, I don't know. That's, I'm completely unfamiliar with the Martian Manhunter verse, obviously. So, uh, I need this book, apparently. Well, JLA Scary Monsters was uh, was well regarded, I remember. So, uh, By the way, art by Chris Beaver and Chris Foreman. So, um, nice images. Uh, there's a, the front page is her, she's, she, her costume is very skimpy. She's got just a little tiny skimpy red top, which covers her breast and that's about it. Uh, and then she's got these cool, uh, like white kind of pants with, uh, jangles on our bangles on the side, you would say. And she's got, um, some white war paint on her face and she's got flames all around her. It's, I, I love that drawing. I think it's really strong. And I like the one on the back too. All right. Up next is a Malefic, another important character in the Martian Manhunter mythos, another more recent one. Probably Martian Manhunter's greatest modern-day nemesis. He is the evil twin brother of John Jones. Uh, he's cursed from birth and seen as a freak. As he grew older, he questioned Mar- uh, Martian ethics and began to pursue some questionable pursuits himself, eventually unleashing the new gods of Apocalypse on Mars. He was experimented on by Desaad, and Malefic was never quite the same. He became a psychic predator on Mars. He was captured and stripped of his powers and memories which drove him further insane, and then he eventually unleashed a plague that wiped out all of the Martians. Yes, that's right. Martian Manhunter's brother wiped out all the Martians. Later, Malefic followed John to Earth, and their battles continued. And uh, he's, he's become pretty big in the mythos of Martian Manhunter. I want to say he was even in one of the animated movies we watched. Um, Justice League Doom, maybe, is what it was. I don't remember the, the name of it. But anyway, uh, he first appeared in Martian Manhunter number zero, which is October 1998. So, and okay. the arc. No, go ahead, Rob. According to Frank, this character deserves more space than Superman. Oh, because he uh, he got three pages. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's there's a lot about the character, and he was really, really a major character in that Martian Manhunter ongoing series, which would really be the the best place for Frank to you know focus on the character, really. So, okay, uh, art here, a lot of artists. What'd you say? I'm just saying. <laughs> Adrian Nelson, Andy Kuhn, James Ferry, Tyler Kirkham, and Wills Portacio. Yeah, Wills Portacio did one. Famous comic book artist here. Uh, his is the bottom right-hand corner on page three, which is really striking. I mean, he's a cool character. You know, he's he's draped in all this stuff, and he's is is. His, his neckline comes up above his nose, which is just super creepy. I love the foreground image in the in, in the main one. I, I think it looks great. Cool, cool, creepy character. And to be fair, if if Frank had done the original Who's Who, Superman would have like five or six pages. That's you know, absolutely true. There'd be so much text. That's uh, probably true. Yeah. All right. Up next is the Marshal, a militant leader on Mars 2 that led the attack on Earth during the Mars Earth War, which again led to the original dissolution of the Justice League, which again is all Rob's fault. Uh, He made a great foe for Martian Manhunter, and first appearance would be uh, Justice League of America, uh, if I can zoom in a little more here. Uh, Justice League of America number 220, I should have known that off the top of my head, I'm embarrassed. 
as well you uh, should. Art, art here by Jerry Rasco. He looks great. He's massive. He looks a little bit like Mongol, how big he is, you know? And he's got his purple and yellow costume and uh, his face blue looking through his giant sort of uh, Battlestar Galactica helmet. He looks great. No weight statistic. I really wanted to know how big he was because how heavy he was. He's a big guy. Frank's cutting corners, I swear. Oh, my gosh. All right. Uh, next up is a two-page spread about some guy named Marshall Manhunter. Don't know that guy. Uh, but, yeah, I co- Excuse me. Covers Marshall Manhunter's whole history here, uh, which is great. And but I like the way Frank wrote this though. It only covers it up to the, about the formation of the Detroit League. Uh, he, he sort of stops there, which is where the original Who's Who entry would have. And I checked, and the text is different, but he just chose to pick that stopping point, which uh, is sort of consistent. So I really like that. And the art here, you've got two images. You've got a serpent image, and then you've got a foreground image. And the art is by. Uh, Damon Bowie, got to assume he's related to David, right? And David Mack. So David Mack's a pretty big name in the Kabuki world. His, his is the Serpent, which looks great. Yeah. Yeah, they're both very nice. Again, this this is like what the injuries would have looked like if you would let the individual fans write them. Like, every, like look at look how much text Marching Manhunter gets, you know? So it's like if, if DC had handed their listings over to, like, the Superman editors, the Batman editors, this is what you would get. You would just get these massive info dumps of these characters. Well, as I seem to recall, I want to say um, Aqua Rob used to say that all the major JLA characters should have had two pages. I'm, I'm not saying I'm, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying this is what it would look like if you had let kind of the, each of the characters, you know, editors or the, their, their big champions write the listings. You would get this level of detail. You look, Think back, Shag, to the Batman listing in the first Oh, I know. Two. I remember. It's like three paragraphs, you know. <laughs> it's and, like, and Batman's like an inch tall. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. <laughs> then again, they let, uh, I think they let Paul Levitz write the Legion ones. They're always like tiny little paragraphs. Well, that's true. Sure, like, yeah. Color kid, giant picture, <laughs> tiny history. Yeah. I wonder if Keith Given wrote those or something. Because like, yeah. that was very strange, yeah. And, and same thing with the Outsiders. They'd have almost no history, you know, with the Outsiders ones either. Hmm. All right, up next is the Master Gardener, who was a survivor of the Mars Plague. Master Gardener uh, fostered a race of lizard men in the absence of the Martians. Invaded Earth and was eventually defeated by Martian Manhunter. And he first premiered in the 1980s Martian Manhunter miniseries. Art here by James Ferry. looks uh, looks kind of cool. It's uh, you know just very. It looks a lot like John Jones in his uh, in his alien mode during the Justice League International era. Yeah, it's I nice. don't know why I don't remember this. I mean, I've read American Secrets. I don't remember this. Oh, all right, great job paying attention. Um, <laughs> <laughs> up next is one of the weirder entries in the book. It's Mister Moth. He's a human thief who used techno- technologically advanced aircraft in his heists. He managed to evade capture by Marsh Manor several times and had an attraction for stealing glittery items. What makes him so strange is the art is just crazy. I love it, though. It's by Cody Shibby, which and it's different than his previous drawing. Uh, Mothman, how would you describe this, Rob? I don't even know what to say. It reminds – well, it's like John Constantine if he had like a bug uh, head. That's basically the vibe I get from it. Ooh, or drawn by R. Crumb. Drawn by kind of – yeah, I can do a little bit of that, yeah. <laughs> and he even has a word balloon. Stay away from the light. <laughs> Goofy and fun. Up next is The Prophet, uh, who was an alien religious zealot who battled Martian Manhunter during a holy war. Art by Damon Bowie. And like this one looks like straight out of like, I don't know, like a Malibu ex-mutants comic or something. It's Some of the proportions are a little out, out of whack, but I mean it's the art, the line work, the coloring is really solid. And the design, I like it. All right, up next is, uh, I'm going to say Rez Ida, Rez Ida, I'm not quite sure. It's R apostrophe E-S, Ida. 
and, and he was the keeper of the sacred Martian symbols on Mars 2. He was the former best friend of Jean Jones and conceived a plot to smear Jean's good name. His plan was to plunder another race for the riches to help the Martian society. What a D-bag, this guy. Um, art by Jerry Rasco. I like the art, though. It's really clean lines. He's got a skirt that's a little too short that would get him uh, what they call <laughs> dress-coded in middle school. And his giant headpiece was just hilarious. But I love his gritty, like, he's got this really, you know, gritty uh, mouth. And he's got these arms out stretched like he's ready to punch somebody and, and take take him on. I just love it. He's got the armlets or whatever they're called. Applets. Applets, uh, It looks yeah. great. Yeah, See, to, me, he, to me, it looks like he's trying to lead the Martians on a cheer. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, ho, ho, those white Martians have got to go. Hey, hey, ho, ho. <laughs> yeah, with those manga ponytails. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hunter called. He wants his ponytails back. Um, up next is a really fun one. It's uh, Ro Carr. He's the first lawman of Mars. Frank did a whole episode about this guy. Uh, his first appearance in 1953 predates the March Manhunter's first appearance by two years. And in that adventure, he actually met Batman and Robin and had a, a little adventure. Now, he has no superpowers, just gadgets. And the art here is by Jim Aparo. No, which... it is not. <laughs> oh, I'm looking at going, oh, but wait, as I said it, I'm like, that can't be right. <laughs> oh, it's by Tom Zoller. Look at that. Tom Zoller, oh, DBA, Jim Apparel. Apparently so, yeah. The, 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 the... <laughs> so Tom did not artificially promote himself here. It's just that For the once. art by. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! It's just Archie by Jim Aparo's leftover from whatever original entry uh, Frank ripped this. From. <laughs> Tom for that was cold, bro. <laughs> Even for <laughs> I like it. I think it's fun. Oh, he it's, a, it's a very nice piece. It's, it it yeah. it completely sells the cartooniness of this character. He's got the little ray gun and the little striped shorts. So yeah, yeah, totally. And this is considered the um, the Earth Two Martian Manhunter. You know, he's even got the yellow gloves. Oh, oh, don't nice. even get Shag started on Earth 2. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, just for you, Rob, I won't do it. All right, up next is Tom Jones. Don't don't be throwing your underwear on stage, girls. <laughs> this is not that man. This is Tom Jones. This is John Jones's little brother. And uh, he was transported to Earth for a short time before returning to Mars. His first appearance was January 1961. And the art is by Norm, uh, by Brett Booth and Norm Rapman. And, you know, they're a well-known comic book team. And it looks great. It looks, well, they're comic book artists. So, yeah, it looks exactly like something you see. He looks like a very young version of Martian Manhunter in his gawky teen years. I love it. It's cute. It's cute. Yeah. There's a lot of... You know, today we, we think of him as the last son of Mars or whatever, but they're all, it's just like Superman. There are a lot of survivors back then, oh, a yeah. lot of Martians. <laughs> Pre-crisis was, uh, was full of these things, no doubt. Uh, up next is uh, Thantos, the three-in-one man. He was this other dimensional being who struck a deal with some crooks to steal ancient magical herbs to extend his time on Earth. And Martian Manhunter and Zook then defeated him. This art is absolutely bonkers, but I love it again. It's by Cody Shibby again, uh, and it's got, again, this this extra-dimensional guy. He's got three eyes, these crazy eyebrows. He's got a cone head. Again, it's got some of those, like, R. Crumb kind of crazy line work. But then he's riding a tricycle. <laughs> he did. He also did the Diablo listing, so I'll, I'll have some of what he's having. Right. This guy's great. I love it. And the fan, he even did a logo at the bottom, Thantos, which looks fantastic. So, well done. I like this one. Very, very nice line work. Very precise yeah. and a little detail. It's, it's again, very uh, – this 
this thing is very diverse in its styles. I mean, it's way more diverse than what actually Who's Who would be. But the, even even among the diverse styles, this uh, Cody Shibby's work really stands out. Uh, and then you get Tor, the robot criminal of Mars. I love this <laughs> thing. Great man. name for a character. Yeah. Well, the, everything about this is great. He's a robot constructed by the Martians and Martian Manhunter, uh, Martian Manhunter intended to serve them. It was accidentally fed a master criminal's thoughts, and so the robot turned evil. <laughs> Eventually, the robot took mental control of an Earth gangster to battle Martian Manhunter. Everything about those sentences I just read is genius. Uh, and the art <laughs> here is by Sam Lottie, and I swear this looks like he stepped right out of Herculoids. He looks love so the artwork. I love oh, yeah. the artwork. Yeah, and the coloring, perfect. You know, with just the two tones, and that's all they did, and it's just perfect. He looks I love like it. Uh, it, the Living Colossus, a little. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yep. Oh, his first appearance, by the way, was in May 1957. All right. And then our last entry is Volkor, the Capsule Master, who's a Martian criminal who stole a super weapon, and the weapon was dismantled by Volkor's underlings and hidden on Earth in Star City. When Volkor returned, this led to a team-up between Martian Hunter, Green Arrow, and Speedy. Pretty cool. Art here by Josh Lyman and Tom Zoller. Look at that. Did, Tom, Tom did the background, the, one, the, the shot of him without his helmet, where he's laughing maniacally. And I love the, the foreground shot with the helmet on, because it's just basically a giant sphere with a visor, which is so funny. <laughs> Super fun. And then, of course, you get the uh, the last page, and he gives some more background on John's family members, the grandmother, his father, his mother, things, things like that. And he promises that you know he's, he's, he wants to keep going. He wanted to do a volume two, because he's got to cover Zook. You know, no Zook in here. So, oh awesome. God. The dedication of this is really quite startling and a little well, frightening. It was two years ago. It's an absolutely amazing piece. Frank, I apologize that uh, we didn't get it covered in 2016 like he wanted. Uh, I think he's still bitter and holding a grudge because when I was texting him or messaging with him on Twitter today, he's, you know, I think he's mad at me. But uh, either way, we love this, Frank. This was an awesome journey going through this. Thank you so much for sharing this with us and the world. Woof. Well, that's it. I think, uh, Rob, we have cleared the decks. Unbelievable. Everybody getting ready. Would, yes. If we're loose leaf after some years of people waiting for the loose leaf, it's, we're, it's next, in the, next on the shoot. Unbelievable. Well, Siskoid, thank you so much for joining us. No one else could have kept us on track and helped us get through this uh, other than you. You were absolutely a delight. Please tell the folks at home where they can find you on the interwebs. Well, on this same network, uh, I've got a number of shows, including Give Me That Star Trek, which is perhaps the most relevant, uh, First Strike Invasion, Ohadmu or Not, whatever else we're doing. And uh, if you like reading, Cisco's <laughs> blog of geekery <laughs> is still up and running, articles every day, so uh, check that out. And since we just spent two hours talking about the Legion, anything else you want to mention? Ah, uh, the Legion of Super Bloggers, damn! Uh, I did mention it <laughs> during, so... Uh, yeah, just just Google that uh, those those keywords and you find it right away. There's material from all eras of the Legion on there, and I'm just a small part of it. Awesome, folks. Uh, next time, as I said, we're going to be doing the loose leaf. I have been collecting your feedback for months on how, because I've been asking everyone, how do you organize your Legion Who's Who binders uh, for loose leaf? So please, if you haven't shared your story with us, put it in the comments for this episode. Rob, where would they leave their comments? Fireandwaterpodcast.com. 
Yep, go over to the Shows tab and hit Who's Who because apparently Rob's too lazy to finish the rest of that information. Go to the Who's Who tab, uh, show and then uh, leave your comment there. Again, I've been collecting them. So when we do our first episode of Who's Who in the Loose Leaf, at the end, the feedback for that episode is going to be how you guys personally organize your binders. And I think it's going to result in arguing probably for a couple of years. Everyone's going to argue with everyone's got it wrong except for themselves So because everyone's got their own niche. And uh, even I had my own weird, quirky way of doing it. So awesome. Rob, uh, where can people find you on the web? All over the place, but uh, on the Fire and Water Network, of course, and I co-host Fire and Water with you, and I do Film and Water and Podzilla and Treasury Cast and Digest Cast with you, and upcoming is the MASH Cast show. Woohoo! Awesome. I can't wait for that. Really looking forward to it. And uh, you can find me on, uh, you know, like Rob said, uh, Aquaman and Firestorm. You can find me on Digest Cast. You can find me on Who's Who. You can also find me on the JLI podcast, the Blah Ha Ha podcast, where we're going through Justice League International. So, and you also find me on Facebook and Twitter as Firestorm Fan, but whatever. So, until next time, uh, I guess that's going to do it. Looking forward to next time, folks. And uh, with that, Rob, I guess the only thing left to say is who's, who's next? Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Dedrick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Oh man, we forgot Slipknot. Rob is eternal, like a river. <laughs>